Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Oof. What a weekend of basketball. We are just about tuckered out, but of course there is still time to do what is going to be an over two-hour edition of Dunked On. We actually recorded on Saturday's games last night, but it'll be at the end of this one. Uh, that was just available for our Patreon subscribers, patreon.com slash Rue, where you can also, of course, get access. Uh, I guess you can watch it even if you don't do that. But if you like the Twitter NBA show and you'd like to support that endeavor and have us do more episodes of it, uh, patreon.com slash Rue is a great place to do that uh but let's get started here with one of the great games i thought or at least one of the great last five minutes and overtimes of games that we've seen in a long time celtics and bucks it was a eventually a 113 107 celtics win in overtime where do you want to start here? should we just talk about the, the this crazy end of the game first that, that's probably it right yeah well i think let's do some some kind of big scope things first then we can get into some will small stuff and and for me where i where i think to start on this game is if you were concerned about the bucks going into this series you got some ammunition in favor of you if you were concerned about the celtics going into this series you got some <laughs> ammunition as well and and I, I think that is what made this game so compelling to me was that you you got reasons to feel positively and negatively about both teams. And that's even true of the ending. I mean, I think the place to start with this and it, it can be, you know, defining defining terms in the craziness. And, and one point for the end of regulation that I want to bring up is that in the last two minutes and 30 seconds of this of regulation of this game, there were only two possessions, two trips down the floor where a team didn't score. They, those happened in immediate succession, and the rest of it was just insanity. And those plays were pretty insane, too. Yeah, and I thought the biggest reason to be optimistic about the Bucks going forward, I mean, because they bucked all over this game, right? I mean, they or bucked, <laughs> maybe we should, we should say, uh, you know, a ton of turnovers. Uh, they were down 10 with uh, under five minutes to go. The offense just was not clicking because they turned it over so much. The defense, they just kept making mental mistakes. And for the first time with 3.11 remaining, Tony Snell checked in for John Henson to, who up to that point had played 37 minutes. And Bill Simmons tweeted a thank you to Joe Prunty for playing Henson 40 minutes, which he was about to do. But then he took him out for the last three minutes. And while the scoreboard may not have indicated it because the Celtics hit some unbelievably ridiculous shots or like, you know, got a bunch of scramble plays off of deflections. Uh, the I thought that the Giannis at center lineup absolutely dominated and it just didn't quite show up on the scoreboard, although they did manage to tie it, of course. 
Yeah, I mean, they, the margin at that point when, when he checked in was... It was five at that point, I, I think. Yeah, it, it was five, it, it was five, and then Giannis made the free throw right. to make it four. So you could, you could argue that it was four. And you're right, though, that this is why we look at process instead of results necessarily. And the quality of shots, I've always said that, you know, in, like in the first quarter, what I'm looking for is the quality of shots, not whether they go in or not, because that is the basis of what you look for going forward in a playoff series. You extend that out because you're looking at a potentially seven game hole and there were a couple of big ones in this sequence the the one that I want to kind of bring up as the key one was Marcus Morris's completely insane last second heave 22 footer that ended up being a two and basically the Celtics had absolutely nothing on that yeah. possession and they they got a rainmaker and so you could say hey look the Celtics made something out of nothing all that kind of stuff but when you build moving forward and saying okay well can they score on this lineup and and I think they can better than they did than than that sort of process but you look more at the at how it happened rather than what the result was yeah and i really thought that the bucks other than one possession where rosier got a three off of a flare screen uh the process was great for them uh, on both then there was another player where Horford tried to was in the late clock and tried to drive, got it stripped, got it back, and then was able to roll in for a foul after the defense uh, had been upset. Um, and then, but really more importantly, I thought offensively. I mean, it started with just two forty six left, spread the floor. Giannis just goes one on one at Horford and just drives right in for a layup. And, and Boston just was not ready for that. They did not have the help. You know, eventually they probably are just going to have to start switching that, but that'll give Giannis a big advantage with shooters around him if they switch that. That stuff Bledsoe had a couple of great drives during that period including one where he just baited Terry Rozier to try and get him at half court and then just blew by him for a, a layup when Boston was up three um so it, it really looked awesome I thought for the Bucks uh, most of the way uh there was that completely ridiculous offensive foul on Giannis where he drove past Morris Morris if anything fouled him was not in front of him just kind of flopped down because he knew he had no chance and they gave the offensive foul when Giannis just went in for a lefty dunk on the play but in fairness, we always forget this. Giannis had traveled and gotten a foul call he didn't deserve right before that when they actually subbed in Snell during those free throws. So, you know, that that kind of evened out uh, eventually. Giannis also later in the overtime when they went for the quick two, a, a clear travel that they didn't call again. Um, so I thought the refereeing evened out reasonably well here. We can talk a little bit more about that. Um, I thought it was a big problem that the Bucks were unable to get a defensive rebound especially at the end of the overtime that was a major issue i mean they were getting great stops uh, initially at tony snell who was a horrible rebounder uh just was in position to grab a couple and just couldn't do it in the overtime and then milwaukee failed to execute both times in both regulation and overtime and this is huge because when you're down two possessions as they were i believe both of these times you have to get the two for one so that you're not in a position where you have to foul and, and they ended up working out because they hit two threes in the last 15 seconds of the game in regulation which we'll get to but i mean that was just you know we were saying during the touring Bay show they got to get the two for one they got to get the two for one and they just they didn't show any kind of urgency i mean i understand all right you know we push it up we try it's not there we tried to get it we couldn't get it we can't just throw some crap up there but they just lazed into their sets on both of those situations and going along with the idea of the bucks kind of buxing this another one of those weird decision elements in this game was how they kept on reaching on al horford and horford if you contest if you make the shot hard certainly some of 
of them will go in. But he isn't Kevin Durant or Marcus Aldridge or, or one of those players where your only hope is to to get to get a reach or to get something like that. And Milwaukee has such great length, and that was actually part of how Horford got it. You and I disagreed a little bit on the the foul on Malcolm Brogdon, which we'll get to in a little bit. But broadly speaking, throughout the game, it was a lifeline that the Celtics used a couple of different points was just getting Al Horford to the free throw line when there were superior defensive outcomes that were easily available. So Milwaukee is down three. They don't get the two for one. And then it's even worse not getting the two for one because they went for a two and they did get a dunk on it. It was a a very easy dunk. That was at least the quick two that results in an automatic dunk. It was a nice DHO on the side and then Giannis rolled in for the dunk, but there's only 24 seconds left. They have to foul Horford, who was very clutch from the foul line. 15 seconds left at this point. And Stevens, you know, we talked about this on the Twitter NBA show of, were they going to go to that 2-3 zone? And I think that they did. It looked like basically four guys were in the zone, but then Horford, because they had Morris on the inbounder, kind of like came out with uh, the guy that they inbounded it to and then didn't really ever seem to get back into position and so all they had to do was and I don't know if the Bucks specifically ran this play for it to be against the 2-3 but Giannis just drives hard and remember they need a three here drives hard to the top of the key and Terry Rozier he, in the 2-3 he's just the one guy on the zone they've just got Malcolm Brogdon on the right wing nobody's in front of Giannis I thought Rozier probably should have just let Giannis go because you're giving up just an absolute wide open three to Brogdon and people are like oh man that 2-3 zone Brad Stevens it's so hard to deal with late in games and you know it can be because you got to have a zone play and a man play in theory but especially when you're in no threes situation like it was just the most wide open three you're ever going to see in this off the simplest action that you're ever going to see uh so Brogdon ice three-pointer drains it Celtics get a timeout and then Terry Rozier. Oh, wait, yeah. I want to make one more point yes, on that yes. play. Also, the other reason why a 2-3 zone specifically is dangerous when you're trying not to give up a 3 is that there's nowhere logical for the help to come from. There, So basically, once Terry Rozier committed to Giannis, there was nobody to go get Malcolm Brogdon unless I can't yeah, remember who Maybe the, the corner guy can come up, uh, but then you're leaving the corner wide open, just one more pass, and there's no one to get that guy. So yeah, it is. It, right. It, so so you, It's very easy to just kind of flood that zone and get a, an open 3 if that's what you want. Right. And so then right. And so then that led to a, a situation where Boston had the ball with I believe it was eleven seconds to go. And they they could had the potential to take the last shot of the game. They didn't quite take the last shot in the game, and that ended up mattering. So Eric Bledsoe confirmed this after the game, uh what happened when he just had his ankles broken by Rozier. He said that he heard the play call. And it was clear that what they were trying to do is to bring Jalen Brown off a double screen on the weak side. Now, where Rozier was, I mean, he was almost really on the right wing. You know, he wasn't even really in the center of the floor. So because a lot of times when the point guard will throw it to a guy coming off a screen, the point guard will leave him and go stunt towards that guy. And so Bledsoe said that's what he was getting ready to do. But that was so far away. And then Rozier saw him turn his head. And as soon as he did that, he just crossed over on Bledsoe, went to the step back. And Bledsoe just wasn't even looking at him. And Bledsoe ended up just standing at the free throw line. I, I joked on the Toronto show that he might have been better off falling down because at least you'd kind of distract the guy <laughs> from his shot if you fall down and so Rozier just wide open three bangs it I mean one of the nastiest moves you're ever gonna see in that kind of a situation um 
but then the Bucks still had uh 0.5 seconds remaining and there is a logical challenge and remember they're down three so you can't do a lob to the rim a lot of the other ways that you could try to get points with less than a second to go aren't on the table and you and I had a discussion doing this live about basically who could release a shot that quickly I didn't think Chris Middleton could and he there's a there seems like there's always a little bit of extra and he gets lift on a jump shot which actually can be a negative in that point and you brought up a good point which when we were doing this at the then which is the human time element here because it's not about actually catching and releasing in 0.5 of a second it's catching and releasing in 0.5 after the clock actually starts and Middleton they were trying to do a series of different things it looked like and ended up being the best option they had was giving it to Chris Middleton 35 feet away took his normal jump shot from 35 lets it out barely gets it off in time and it and it goes in so we go to overtime and it was absolutely incredible it it was and the Celtics defense was one that I think a lot of people have proposed is don't even put anyone inside the three-point line basically go with like a five-man zone outside the three-point line and that worked to avoid getting a shot right at the three-point line but because Jalen Brown he couldn't actually go out to Middleton so he was able to get an uncontested look yeah it's 35 feet and there's 0.5 seconds I mean you don't expect that to go in but any means but he got a totally clean look because of what they did and I, I still think that you know maybe that's a good idea but you can still kind of flood that zone so that the guy has to make a decision and can't you can't guard everyone you know if you just try to switch everything and just say hey if we switch and there's a guy going to the basket you know we're not going to guard that guy uh I, I still think that that's a better way that when you're in a no threes defense switching everything is the way to go you just have to trust that your communication is going to be good enough but i mean that was just an all-time shot by middleton i mean we can't obscure that with just to get it off and it's not like you know you shoot that shot right like that's a shot where you got to kind of wind up a little bit more because you're from you're so far away and to get it off in time i mean that was just unbelievable so after a replay review we ended up getting into overtime and the bucks decided to stick with Giannis at center a lineup that had served them very well and they actually worked into a lead they were ahead 103 101 after Giannis got another dunk and then they led again after rosier made a three and then brogdon got in got into the basket again he had to had some nice moments late so with three minutes to go in overtime the bucks lead 105 104 and the bucks scored two more points in the rest of overtime yeah that was tough and i thought again though their defense was good a lot of the times uh but it was undone by one time they doubled al horford um very early uh, and he was able to find Jalen Brown on a great cut that was their first bucket in overtime another time Horford had his back to goal went in and Giannis just reached out over his head and just hit him in the head that is Giannis's fifth foul um another they got a couple of stops where their big offensive rebounds Jason Tatum who I thought had the biggest bucket of the overtime with that twisting righty layup on the left side over Giannis who had five fouls at the time maybe he could have been a little more aggressive challenging it if he hadn't picked up that foul earlier on Horford um that was a beautiful layup from Tatum and there was another play where that Rozier three was after they had the Bucks had gotten a deflection and then they just couldn't find their matchups after the scramble for the loose ball very well although I thought it was poor communication they could have done it you know a team like the Warriors they would be able to match up there whereas you know the Bucks are just you know they they don't really switch very much uh and they're just you know young they don't communicate very well whatever it is uh so yeah I mean they were just I, I thought again the Bucks outplayed them in the overtime 
wide open three from brogdon in the corner that missed they had a wide open three from snell that airballed on the right wing that Giannis ended up getting a putback dunk on they had a wide open three from middleton on the right wing on the same possession i think is that brogdon missed three after Giannis got an offensive rebound um so they they had plenty of chances and just could not get it and then the crucial possession of course they get a steal they are at this point it's a two-point game boston with the lead tatum drives throws it away they've got a three on three Giannis in the middle of the floor and he actually kind of pulled it out a little bit which i was surprised by they're again in a two for one situation they were unable to get the two for one uh again that matters at the end of games because you know just getting two chances with the other teams one when you're down two is huge i mean it's not like they had to get two possessions to tie it but still just to to have more opportunities just to if you miss to be able to just defend without fouling they couldn't do that then Brogdon, with plenty of time on the shot clock, a terrible drive, just had no chance against Tatum, got rejected. It goes out to Snell in the corner, and he had seven on the shot clock, and he was asked about the shot afterwards. He said, yeah, you know, there was seven on the shot clock, and so I just decided to shoot it. And it's like, uh, yeah, you know, you, your feet weren't set. You weren't really open. You know, it wasn't a terrible miss, but boston was able to get the defensive rebound uh horford hits another couple of free throws and then they use their last time out with about 15 seconds left they go for the quick two down four which i hated you cannot go for the quick two especially when you have no timeouts left and you just use your last time out to set that up and at least try for a three first they and it was the fallacy of the quick two right like Giannis is like oh he's got horford on him well he tried to drive horford was right there Giannis actually traveled uh ended up getting ba- totally bailed out with a foul call and that's when he made one free throw missed the second went for his own rebound and Rozier came in from the three-point line did a great job executing there uh getting the rebound and Giannis was called for a sixth foul but they were already screwed at that point because they were down three and and Rozier just got in the rebound so that that call didn't isn't what sunk them right and Rozier was doing his job as somebody behind the three-point line trying to get the shooter and he had secured the rebound at that point it wasn't you know like Giannis had a, a real hold on that ball so he would have he I mean I think he would have gone the line there wasn't a reasonable way to call it a jump ball so not that that kind of it, it certainly it pissed Giannis off and I understand that and there were a couple of other dicey yeah. calls that's the way it works in these yeah. sorts of and, and Giannis at least acknowledged but, that he should have made the free throw you know that was uh th- that was good to see at least but sure and so anything else on kind of the end of the game i have some some other yeah. big thoughts on this one it, very interesting but let's one. uh let's talk about helix sleep first uh after this is over with uh eight basketball games about 20 hours worth uh, of basketball watching two hours of podcasting probably 10 hours worth of twitter nba show finally i'm gonna get to sleep on my awesome helix sleep mattress after this helix sleep is not like other mattress delivery companies because they actually make the mattress for you you fill out their two to three minute sleep profile and you can customize it for how cool you want to sleep the firmness they'll ask how much you weigh the uh, point elasticity is uh, something that they will customize for you based uh, on your measurements and preferences if you have a significant other whose preferences differ with yours you can actually get the foam split down the middle seven to ten days after you order it they will make it for you your own mattress in the factory gets made and shipped to you in as little as a week and it is the best mattress that I've ever slept on. Prices far, far less expensive than what you would pay at a traditional mattress store for a mattress this good. We now have two of them. And uh, the first one that we got almost three years ago now sleeps just as good as the day that we got it. The way to get started with them is go to helixsleep.com slash cap space right now and you'll actually get this is an even better deal than it was before up to $125 towards your mattress order. 
That's helixsleep.com slash capspace. Easy to remember, we talk about capspace all the time on the program. Get up to $125 towards your mattress order. Helixsleep.com slash capspace. Let them know that you came from us. So what else did you have on, on the meat of this game? The crux of this series for the Celtics is really not necessarily about winning or losing. It's how do their young guys fare in this unusual circumstance because of the expectation that Kyrie and Gordon Hayward at bare minimum, maybe some other additions, either through the draft or Marcus Smart, can be a part of the team in the future. And I thought both Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum in particular did a really nice job of not getting overwhelmed by the moment, but also looking very comfortable with the ball in their hands. And Brown had a couple of nice drives. Jason Tatum, especially early in the game, he was was getting to his spots he had forced a couple of shots late but he also had a couple of nice defensive plays and I feel like their fans and the coaching staff should walk away from this game feeling better about what those players can do even if being the primary option is not the best part of their long term that increased demonstration of capability is still important I agree and, and it's even in this situation you know it's not like hey high pick and roll Jalen Brown go to work you know they're still moving the ball from side to side getting some decent opportunities but I really felt that uh when the Bucks didn't screw up in this game, they defended the Celtics pretty well. And, you know, Al Horford was unbelievable. 13 to 14 from the foul line. A lot of that was just dumb fouls, though, by the Bucks, right? Like, uh, you know, we talked about Giannis defending him in the post. And you know what? Like, Giannis has long arms. He loves to reach. And he did get one steal late in regulation on Horford out near the three-point line. But you got to just stay solid, make Al Horford go anywhere other than his left shoulder and try to contest. And, and if he makes a shot, he makes a shot, but you can't foul this guy. I mean, Al Horford, the biggest criticism of him in his career has been his inability to be a primary post-up option. You know, and granted it's Giannis and he's not as strong as Horford, perhaps he's not as experienced, but you just got to stay solid. You got to force the guy to make a shot on you instead of fouling. And he just reached in, the Bucks reached in a lot of times digging down on Horford for they double teamed which i thought really was unnecessary um also of note aaron baines i thought was pretty ineffective in this game when he had to get out on the floor and pick and roll defense uh he really got cooked and he was 0-4 from the field uh i think he had one mid-ranger but he had it like a, a shot blocked by like tony snell or something uh didn't really go up strong baines as we've mentioned before on the 15 and 60 is uh one of the worst restricted area finishers in the nba for his size he only shoots like 55 percent down there and with the bucks length and shot blocking it wasn't that effective and then john henson had six block shots you know i thought he was effective he was more of a problem offensively for the bucks i thought defensively he's okay he is slow though he got attacked there uh and the question for joe prunty has got to be well you know and we talked about this in the preview hey you know the numbers weren't great with the honest at center all year but the question has got to be why didn't they go to that earlier because i thought it looked amazingly good and well i you know i picked the bucks in seven in this series and the Celtics won this game and so you know I thought this game was very very true to form of what I expected in the series but I am hopeful and uh that is a dangerous word with the Milwaukee Bucks I am hopeful that Joe Prunty can get to that lineup and you know I'm not sure that Boston has a lot of options to defend it um yeah a couple other quick things one Shane Larkin was an absolute disaster in the first half four turnovers couldn't just just forcing the ball a little bit and I like the way Brad Stevens adjusted because he he had to play Shane Larkin they didn't have any other options at the one so what they did is they largely took the ball out of Shane Larkin's hands so he was the point guard but he wasn't really running much of the offense Horford had it for moments Jalen Brown had it for moments and 
they were able to put together a nice little stretch with Larkin on the four. Larkin also can, you know, he hit a he hit a catch and shoot three. It's a much better, it was a much better use, at least in this game, of it. And, you know, at a certain moment, teams have to deal with playing guys that they didn't anticipate having on the four in those moments. And I thought they did a nice job of that. And you talked about Prunty and Giannis at center. The other thing they did with Giannis at center in those lineups is that they did not have Jabari Parker on the four. And his defense at certain moments in this game was absolutely ruinous, including one where... I think it was on Jalen Brown, where Jalen Brown basically just dribbled around him and then got a layup because Jabari Parker never cut him off and no other Bucks came to help. Yeah, and that said, I actually thought Jabari tried harder in this game, especially on the boards. Then you'll see he actually like boxed out every once in a while, like went for some rebounds. Um, he he was playing at a higher intensity level, but you know certainly he deserved to be on the bench. He was negative fourteen in fifteen minutes, and Larkin, you mentioned his struggles. He ended up plus twelve because Boston really surged uh, during bench time in the second half and then Eric Bledsoe had a nightmare game he ended up actually sitting out a lot of the third quarter because uh they just felt like Brogdon was playing better uh, and then he ended up fouling out in the overtime but uh four of 12 for him but I thought you know he attacking when they had the floor spread and you know maybe the the idea is you help off a of Giannis a little bit more because Horford was kind of sticking to Giannis and then Bledsoe just pushed it up and went right by Rozier and there was no one else to help at the room because they had the floor spread so I think more of that from him Malcolm Brogdon 32 minutes pretty goddamn good for a guy who basically just came back last week from that partially torn quad tendon I thought that his three-pointer was not looking good but he hit a confident one and then obviously that huge one that tied it with 15 seconds left in, in regulation had a couple of nice drives although he, he did get stopped by Tatum uh, on that crucial possession in the overtime and so you just have to want yeah well, and good and speaking of huge ones that that tied the game in regulation we talked about that Chris Middleton shot but he had a wonderful game overall as well oh yeah yeah more more in regulation than in, in the overtime from what I recall but 31 points a lot of it just kind of manufacturing looks in 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 mid-range I still don't love his mid you know he, he takes shots that frustrate me but they go in for him 51 yeah. percent, I believe from mid-range and he was year. taking him on some hit, tough matchups yeah. or good matchups for oh, him with, too I should say. Well, it, it, it was interesting that there was this stretch of time when he and Marcus Morris were guarding each other, and both of those guys are way too comfortable taking tough mid-rangers and are better than maybe some think at, at making mid-rangers yeah. tough for the other guys. So they were they were trading him a little bit, but I thought Middleton had a very nice game overall. He also had six assists. I don't recall those being particularly electrifying passes, but still good that he kept the ball moving. Yeah, he's an underrated passer. I, I thought that he was very quick on the release from three, five of seven from three, and just, you know, was not doing the pump fake dribble in for a mid-range two you know he actually was spacing the floor pretty well for this team um I mean we don't need to talk about this now but you know Jerry Parker 15 minutes that's what he deserved uh, on this squad I mean this is the guy that you want to pay 20 million a year to in the offseason you know this is if he's not going to have a role here I mean this is a Bucks team that's ready to win now he's not ready to contribute at that level and I guess we say now you know Giannis is very young but you know his contract situation uh is uh certainly difficult here and if Jabari isn't ready to contribute to the playoffs you know you can't spend that money on him you got to spend it somewhere else maybe you can get a little something for him in a sign and trade or you know trade him to a team like the Suns or the Magic that could use some young talent and wants to take a flyer on someone that's not ready to win yet and hope to develop him because he's got a long way to go I, I still think there's a place for him in the series especially if they're going to play Giannis at center more try him in those lineups I think you know he could be successful uh as a uh you know a one-on-one -on -one guy creating offense if they've got a little more space around him but so it'd be very interesting to see and then for Boston side 15 minutes for Baines 10 minutes for Monroe and then the rest of it basically was Al Horford at center 
um and uh that's uh he played 44 minutes only three fouls they're gonna stay with horford at center and they damn well better if they're gonna go with the honest at center i mean I, if i'm the bucks i might even look to get Giannis at center when boston it goes with their traditional center i mean make you know make aaron baines guard someone on the perimeter and, and really just try to press that advantage um you know uh, or make horford play more minutes than he wants to because stevens likes to hold his minutes well, down early and something we've seen with teams that have kind of challenged with these approaches is that if a coach basically plays a traditional center at the beginning of games because he feels like he has to, if you force them out of that, they're probably not really going to play that guy very much in the rest of the game. And that puts a lot of strain on the rest of Boston's rotation. If they were full strength, they would have enough wings to make this work. But right now, without Smart, without Gordon Hayward, it's a lot harder to get these balances right. And even without Kyrie, because now Rozier is playing exclusively at the one rather than playing a little bit. Let's move on to indiana and cleveland now this was in in terms of consequences for the league for the rest of the series i would say maybe the biggest game of the entire first round our first weekend let's uh yeah yeah first round so far yeah yeah okay and let's start with victor oladipo oladipo was absolutely spectacular in this game so aggressive at creating his own shot but also drawing the attention and cleveland this was especially obvious in the fourth quarter they were game planning for him differently than every other member of the indiana pacers doing a lot more trapping and be just being so cognizant of what he was doing on the floor even so with all that attention victor oladipo 32 points 11 and 19 from the field six and nine from three four of eight from the line so if he shoots a little bit better there it's an even better night and four turnovers on that kind of usage especially with four assists i'm okay with that i i, I thought that he just played a wonderful game and had some really impactful defensive possessions as well four steals just a really good as a help defender digging down and guys tried to drive on him he just cut them off I and mean, he was really he played like an absolute superstar uh validating our uh, pick for him of all nba uh because you know one game can validate something like that but he looked the part in this game and i mean i thought the pacers shot it well from three most of that was old depot he had more than half of their threes uh a lot like bogdanovich had it was five of 17 he had a ton of open looks that he just ganked uh you know i thought but old depot hit his so it, it all kind of evened out they shot 39 percent from three but he he was just really unstoppable getting a switch even if he didn't get a switch backing up to half court accelerating and then pulling up on a dime and nobody could match him in terms of the quickness i mean the what he has done to increase his quickness since this time last year is amazing i mean nobody can keep up with him and then at one point they tried just straight up trapping him and then bringing another guy all the way up to the you know really the free throw line to take away the roll man um but that you know that's a very extreme defensive philosophy uh, they just straight up doubled him after a switch as well um but you know it just it's hard to get away with those type of strategies and and we did uh, ultimately uh, the Pacers did shoot 60 percent from the foul line I thought they missed a lot of layups against Cleveland as well so ultimately I thought the Cavaliers I won't say necessarily defended well enough, but gave up few enough points to win. But then their offense was just terrible. A lot of that was their support players not hitting shots. And you could start with Jeff Green because part of the Pacers. Yeah, well, that's what Ty, that's what Ty Lue did. He started with Jeff Green. <laughs> <laughs> he did. And he just so I, I we railed on this early in the game that it was a mistake for Miles Turner to stay as close to Jeff 
screen as he did when those were the defensive assignments. It, but Green still got open for a series of shots, missed all of them. He's zero for seven from the field, didn't make a three. But that extends throughout the supporting cast. Other than J.R. Smith getting hot late, a lot of guys struggled. Hood couldn't hit his open shots. George Hill struggled to hit his open shots. Jose Calderon, shockingly, uh, uh, one of those players who generally that's what he can do best as an offensive player is is hitting his open shots. Clarkson struggled in that way. Corver only played four minutes, largely probably due to a sore foot, maybe out of sorts. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on for him right now. And so that put a lot on LeBron's shoulders and he didn't really deliver in that element. He had some truly unstoppable moments in this game, but I mean, in the first quarter, he didn't make a shot yeah. and he was largely being guarded by yeah, Bogdanovich. Right. They, they got away with putting three. Bogdanovich on him. I mean, that that to me was the was the number one thing. Like now, if when the Pacers, if, they're, if they have to play Lance instead of Bogdanovich, and I don't know that, I mean, Bogdanovich did a nice job, but you know, you would think that LeBron would just kill him. Like that was key to me. It was. And I also didn't like a lot of the adjustments that Ty Lue throughout in this game used some of Larry Nance as, you know, like Larry Nance played 30 minutes in this game and he certainly has some strengths, but he gave the Pacers a place to put somebody. I mean, going back even to the, the Channing Fry lineups that the Cavs used to roll out there, where there's just no there's no safe spot for, for a guy to be. That was important. Tristan Thompson only played in garbage time in this game. And there, there just were too much reliance on players that I don't think are really playoff guys, and not enough reliance, even if, like, I mean, so it's like, oh, well, you know, Jordan Clarkson can do things with the ball in his hands. Okay, that's true. But playing him with LeBron is a little bit less valuable then, because LeBron should have the ball in his hands all the time and Jeff Green you know it's a different kind of capability but that's there I would have liked to have seen more of Chetty Osman because Chetty Osman can actually play defense he tries hard he's going to be a lower usage guy so then you can hopefully get those possessions to more capable offensive players but he also forces the defense to respect his shot to a degree so I, I think that they can strike a better balance here and it's concerning that lose instincts in these cases are so often to players that don't make the best fit yeah Nance Larry Nance is a bench player he is just not good enough defensively to be a starter uh as an offensive player he's limited but obviously he can get up for some alley oops that has value but there's a lot of players who can do that at the center position and then defensively he plays hard but he's not quick enough to move his feet really as a switch guy he doesn't really protect the rim particularly well he's not a great post defender either if you have a post-up center you know he's a little light in the shorts for that so you know what is he really doing against some of the best teams it's tough to say you know they gave up a lot to get him obviously they had to take on Clarkson contract to them maybe they didn't find that particularly onerous Uh, they gave up the first round pick of course as well and so you know I, I mean he played hard he gets out in transition that helps but it, you know he's not I don't think he was a big part of the solution in this game JR actually played pretty well you know he was a, that's one encouraging thing and, and maybe they have to go back to starting him I thought Rodney Hood just is not good enough defensively and then George Hill I thought should he, I know he was negative 14 but like isn't he supposed to be your best defensive option like a stopper at the guard position like how about putting him on Victor Oladipo and see if he can you can actually play some pick and roll defense against Oladipo or at least stop him in ISO and and the other you mentioned Nance well that gave they played basically either Nance or Jeff Green I want to say every single minute of this game and Green was just miserable 0 for 7 he missed a couple of wide open corner threes in a row shocking that Jeff Green wouldn't deliver on a wide open threes in the playoffs and so but that gave Miles Turner and to a lesser extent Sabonis who has a little quicker feed than Turner a place to hide and 
you know this is this cleveland team needs to be about outscoring uh the opposition and they, they obviously you know 80 points here yeah eight out of 34 from three they won't be that bad again they they have had some very puzzlingly just awful games from three at times this year uh kevin love needs to be much more involved offensively uh think like things like screening for him getting him down in the post on switches i mean he took eight shots six of them were threes and, and only 34 minutes for him too you'd hope he, he could get a few more but nine points for him i mean he's easily their second best offensive player um so i i think the other thing that i'd love to see them do uh which worked pretty well though part of it was because they were guarding jeff green too closely was they ran these you know like remember that old 45 set that the clippers just killed the spurs with in the 2015 playoffs where they they brought up two bigs to screen for chris paul way at half court well cleveland actually started doing it with their two smallest guys and then having bigs who in theory were shooters in the corners and then just having guards roll to the basket and indiana had no answer for that uh turner was sticking way too close to green that was like the the key part he had to bring the help but i thought they had a lot of success with those sets and then they just totally went away from them yeah that was definitely a concern that they because we've seen lou at other moments going back even to that series against the raptors where they ran that del vadova play eight times in a row i believe it was until until they stopped it and at a certain point you know it doesn't have to be pretty it just has to work and cleveland needs to get more into that mo it was good to see jr smith hit a couple shots later in the game couple on on strong contest but that's that's the way it can work sometimes with jr one other play i want to mention just because i don't want to forget about it again sabonis dunking all over Ooh. kevin love like that was just that was nasty that should have been an and end one too i mean he put his forearm right in his he, chest and he still dunked him it was great yeah and i i thought a lot of pacers you know they didn't necessarily have great statistical games but i just liked the minutes that they put out there trevor booker you and i have both never loved his fit in terms of just like being a part of the modern nba because he's limited as a shooter but he brought nice energy and he was you know a, a, a positive contributor during his minutes he only played 12 minutes but that's really all they needed when you look at the other the depth of their rotation I thought Bogdanovich's defense was was far better than I anticipated he has had some tough assignments this year I thought LeBron was you know that's as tough as an assignment gets thought he did a pretty good job Collison battled defensively I I, I thought that he missed a couple shots that definitely could have gone in and so the Pacers should feel good about those elements of this and this wasn't you know the best outcome for that like the the you know like oh everything went right for the Pacers enough went right for them to win this game comfortably but they still have ways to improve which they're going to need because Cleveland as you said is not going to shoot 8 to 34 from three anytime soon probably yeah I thought adjustments for Cleveland doing a better job of not guarding the Pacers non-shooters you know Thad Young we're going to make you hit a three uh Bogdanovich, they they probably need to guard better than they did, frankly. But you know, Corey Joseph, we're, we're going to not guard you. Booker, uh, you know, Lance Stevenson was one of four from three. You know, let let him fire away, and just they got a load to Victor Oladipo better than they have. Um, but yeah, I mean, the Pacers. Yeah, yep. go ahead. It would also be ideal if LeBron got back on defense a little bit more consistently. Yeah, but I mean, he was on track to play 45 minutes in this game, the entire second half. Um, I mean, and I thought the Pacers showed uh, a solid recovery when the Cavs got it back within seven. I think it was late third quarter, and then they were able to push it right back up, hold the Cavs to... I mean, the Cavaliers had 15 and 14 point quarters in this game. I mean, that is, and I thought when Indiana was struggling, it was because they couldn't score, but I thought they still, you know, were getting decent 
looks they just weren't going down so uh what is your panic meter at right now for the cleveland cavaliers one through ten it's not super high i don't think this changed so probably like a six because i don't think this changed how i feel about the general structure of the series however it does obviously make it so now cleveland has to win four games out of six rather than four games out of seven but there is one huge thing and i mentioned this on the twitter nba show briefly is indiana should push as hard as they can in the first quarter of game two because this has the kind of the the psyche and the the fragility of this cleveland team that just hasn't really put it together very much this year yes they have gone on a couple win streaks but they haven't been able really to consistently defend they're you know missing guys a lot of things aren't right and so if they can kind of break Cleveland's confidence a little bit more fully and I don't think we're going to necessarily see that you know 2010 LeBron just totally checked out that sort of a circumstance but if they can get that sort of an edge and use any I I mean if they go up 2-0 in the series or if at least if they put a scare into it that can be a meaningful advantage as they move forward in terms of building confidence and getting a little bit of fear in the Cavs. By the way, in, in 2010, I always felt that LeBron's elbow injury was a little bit underrated because, I mean, he just could not shoot a jump shot uh, by the end of that series against the Cavs. Um, you know, certainly there are conspiracy theories and, oh, he was he was one and a half steps out the door and, and, and going to Miami, et cetera. But, uh, and, and maybe the fact, but I, I thought that he was really compromised by his inability to shoot because, I mean, he certainly Certainly, he played awesome in the series before then, and he was good in the first couple of games uh, of that series. But uh, in any event, yeah, it does kind of have that potential. I mean, if they would lose the first two, but you can never count out this Cleveland team, and they've had some unbelievable comebacks this year. I mean, they've had some unbelievable comebacks. It's a different Cleveland team, obviously, than, than it was before. I mean, uh, adjustment for the Cavs. Jeff Green, sit your ass on the bench. I mean, he's who is he supposed to be guarding anyway? Uh, play LeBron at the four, and... If you're going to do this offensive love at center lineup, like go all in, do it. Like actually force Miles Turner to guard a three-point shooter, you know, whether that's starting Osman, maybe you start Smith and you play Hood and Smith. And I think more George Hill uh, has got to be part of it. I know Hill was negative 14, but I didn't think that was particularly his fault they brought him here to defend on the perimeter uh you know i know he took a a little bit of a hard fall and maybe that's why he didn't play more but only 19 minutes from him 21 for clarkson uh you know your defense goes from bad to worse when clarkson is out there all right we'll uh get to the rest of the games here actually no we could do another one because we we do have like two more hours to go still so uh where do you want to go next oh let's keep going in chronological order and chronological order of the games on sunday i i get that that's a little bit weird and go with the jazz and the thunder this game started out out with a, a push by the Utah Jazz they led 11 to 2 and they were getting a lot of a lot of that damage in transition something that did not necessarily continue as as consistently throughout the rest of the game though they did end up being credited with 21 fast break points and Donovan Mitchell was spectacular early he did have some certainly some moments late but that the, the high point of his game to me was that first the first like four minutes of this one yeah nine early points and we questioned the strategy of putting Paul George mostly onto Joe Ingles. Well, when Paul George had 36 points and was that good offensively, you can have him guard whoever you want. And and I think Ingles was largely taken out of it until late. Um, 
he's that ancillary pick and roll ball handler for the jazz i should say additional pick and roll ball handler for the jazz he's more important than ancillary uh and he takes some of the pressure off of rubio some of the pressure uh, off of mitchell rubio 18 shot attempts that was certainly exactly what oklahoma city wanted and only three of them were threes too so and he was 0 for 3 on those three so it's not like they're leaving him open for a three which he's actually improved at hitting the spot ups they forced him to shoot quite a bit and, and he was not able really to deliver 18 shots in 31 minutes that's not what they want only five assists too. the the jazz 18 assists is, uh, on 41 made field goals is not what they want at all and i thought oklahoma city took them out of a lot of what they like to do moving the ball they pressured out in the floor they denied uh brewer i thought w- was solid enough uh, on mitchell although he got beat a few times uh he, he made a nice return from uh that mild sprained knee that he suffered against memphis in the regular season finale and paul george's eight for 11 from three was amazing and i thought they didn't do a good enough job of pressing up uh, on him um he was shooting threes off the dribble or off the catch and you know kind of iso type of threes and paul george is not a great dribbler he doesn't have a great first step especially when he's out there without a lot of their other guys you got to force him to drive get some help if you need it uh but and he hit a couple of pretty nice step backs to be sure but you know you can bother those a lot more if you're really selling out to take away the three-pointer and uh i i did not really care for the jazz approach defending him even though of course you know he still has to make those shots and they were still relatively contested so he was uh he was awesome george was one of three in the restricted area and then 11 of 16 because that includes his three of five from mid-range on jump shots outside the paint and he was just nailing those shots i agree with you you want to make him dribble you want to contest those shots as best you can but he was really the to me the biggest difference maker for the the thunder i think he was the best player on the floor in this game that doesn't mean he's going to be the best player in game two or in the rest of the series but he certainly was here and impactful defensively in a different way it reminded me to a point of when they put paul george on clay thompson in one of the games against the warriors and it just kind of put the warriors off their axis because even though clay thompson is not steph curry he's not kevin durant it made their offense more vanilla and i thought that was something that ended up being a problem for utah part of that also is the way that russell westbrook's proclivities can be used with ricky rubio because losing ricky rubio is not as big of an idea he did have a couple rubio did have a couple of nice drives to his credit he did that but his jump shot was not falling in this game it has been better this year than in other years but i'm still not comfortable betting on it and one of the challenging elements for the jazz is they don't have that many other real wholesale options they can go with jay crowder who played 28 minutes in this game but royce o'neill specific strengths and weaknesses as a more of a defensive player and then their only other guy who played more than garbage time was dante exum and exum doesn't exactly serve as a replacement for ricky rubio or just to give them a different look he's just dante exum putting george on a shooter because ingles is also really their best spot up guy works as well because he has an uncanny ability to help off of even a dangerous shooter and not get burned for it you know he really knows when the guy turns his back he can get close out on the guy so quickly so you know obviously i think it worked they'll probably stick with that maybe down the end of the game they would have put paul george on mitchell if it were a little bit closer which it, it was not um and i thought though this was a little bit of a although westbrook is not the type of player shooting the three off the pick and roll that we really worried about gobert trying to guard i thought this was a little bit of a nail in the coffin of the gobert as top 10 player because gobert 
could not guard the Westbrook Adams pick and roll down the end. Utah finally started scoring, but then they just were giving up alley dunks. Worth noting, by the way, that Adams appeared to hurt his hand on one of those dunks and, and was favoring that a little bit. So that'll be something to watch here. Also, really key for the Thunder, they won this in large part during bench time and uh, Jeremy Grant plus 12 in, in 14 minutes. And then Abrinas was exhumed to the tune of three of five three-point shooting 11 points in 21 minutes for him and this is a jazz team that uh, i thought we talked about this coming in that they don't really have the offensive approach of say a houston where oh alex abrinas is out there well we're just going to kill that guy in an iso carmelo anthony who who gave much better effort i thought defensively in this one uh he still was only five out of 13 you know missed a, a lot of makeable jump shots but he actually even had a driving dunk at one point um past uh Jerebko, who looked uh quite calcified defensively in this game uh and only played four minutes they, they never even went back to him but you know they didn't the jazz didn't go after carmelo Carmelo enough and then there's a there's ways with the way they're running things to help off of some of the non-shooters whether it's O'Neal whether it's Rubio um but the Jazz you know don't they don't play that type of isolation ball and I, yeah good well and something else they did which you and I both don't like against a limited defender is one of the easiest ways that Utah did attack him was by posting Derek Favors up against Melo and yes Derek Favors is a talented post-up player but how you exploit a bad defender is by making them defend an action by making them defend in space if all you say is try to stay in front of this dude and especially if he's doing like a, a more basic motion like backing you down that's about the best thing that Melo can do and it was the same thing with Harden a couple years ago same thing with Ennis Canner for all these years is like these guys are bad defenders but there are elements where they are less exploitable and it felt like Utah was focusing too much after the early stretch where they ran some high pick and roll got in the middle of the floor some there were some tactical adjustments from OKC but Utah was playing more into OKC's hands than they should have Mitchell had an injury scare late in this one uh but sounds like he's going to be okay at MRI it was negative um I thought the Jazz managed it well they sent him back to the locker room he came back he tried to play on it then next Actually, they took him out and the trainer talked to him and confirmed that he was okay that's really all that you can do it brought him back and I, I was questioning that a little bit just because they were down by so much at that point it was kind of like why bother but he an MRI was negative and he, he plans to play in game two um adjustments for Utah at all I think they should be open to playing a little bit more four out they entered so they used favors but they uh, the offense looked better when favors was on the floor so maybe that maybe that's just my the the you know, intuitive part part of it for me rather than the way that the results actually fared out if they need to go with Mitchell at the one because one of the other just huge parts of this is so Mello had Derek Favors they didn't exploit that well enough and allowing Russell Westbrook to guard Ricky Rubio I think bailed them out and I also thought Utah didn't make OKC work as much in some of those possessions they were taking jump shots with like nine or 12 seconds on on the clock and OKC without Robertson if you make them work for 24 seconds somebody's gonna mess up and it's not as much an effort-based thing necessarily with them. It can be recognition and double and and just like getting into a lot of different stuff. And I thought Utah was going to exploit that more than they did. Yeah, and I thought that OKC's pressure kind of prevented them from working the ball around and, and, and getting penetration. And I mean, Bob Volgares, I'm not sure I would quite break this in case of emergency yet, but he recommended maybe even going to Alec Burks to just try and get some more penetration going to the rim uh because they weren't really getting hurt uh by for all the overplaying uh that OKC was doing and so you know when you can't reverse the ball easily uh just you have to pop out just two or three steps further well now that you can't reverse the ball fast it allows everyone else behind the play to get back in a position instead of that quick ball reversal giving you an opening um 
you know utah did get screwed by the call it's a little bit here though you know when you lose by 18 in the competitive portion of the game they they it was 116 108 but they had a, a late run with their scrubs in i shouldn't say scrubs but their deep reserves in at the end um their uh non-rotation players in at the end but you can't complain about you know foul trouble killing you or whatever you know and gobert he ended up playing 35 minutes it's not like and he didn't play at the end so he would have played his full complement regardless i thought that steven adams gave gobert some trouble um being a little bit physical with him he even posted him up got a couple of fouls you know gobert should be able to contain him uh so i, I think gobert could play a lot better and but th- this is we said in the preview these teams in the playoffs where you're like oh man how are they doing it there's so much more than the sum of their parts like those teams just don't seem to play as well as they do in the, in the regular season whether it's the stars playing more minutes the stars playing at a greater intensity greater playoff intensity just you know not being able to beat that with kind of execution uh the way you can in the regular season whatever that is i mean mitchell is the one guy who's like has superstar level of offensive talent on this team he produced and the rest of the team kind of didn't another important element of this game long term Corey brewer we were worried with with his knee played 34 minutes he didn't really pop but uh, he was out there yeah. and while abrinas did well just having Corey brewer as as an option the whole value like basically it's value over replacement with brewer that's been the whole issue that he's been so successful is because the other guys had struggled and so having him out there for 34 minutes was important all right let's get to the last game of the day uh, houston and minnesota this is a blown chance for minnesota houston 10 out of 37 on threes seven of those 10 were made by james harden who you know just put the team on his back especially late with some of these setbacks one of which was actually a travel although it took me 97 viewings and, and like a zoomed in video from a, a a tweeter to see it like that one uh on wiggins at the end of the first half was a, a travel but uh a lot of those stepbacks were not and uh uh, you know with gordon not really shooting it well from three one out of seven paul had a miserable game and really the only other rocket to play well offensively was capella and he had 20 points in the first half then they adjusted to take away what he was doing in the second half and uh, the wolves just actually lost this on offense i think they actually i, I mean i thought they their defense wasn't great and, and but they did enough defensively you know maybe houston hits their shots more and and you know the wolves defense wasn't as good as an and it was still, they gave up a 111 offensive rating. It was a slow paced game. Um, wasn't as good as the 104 points given up would indicate. But yeah, they lost this offensively. They also, Minnesota, got a better than expected game at bare minimum. You could praise it even more than that from Derek Rose. Rose was for a long time the leading scorer. Wiggins eventually got past him. There, I have my own thoughts on that. But one of the other big factors for Minnesota was just that Jimmy Butler looked out of sorts to me. I think of that more as a health thing than what Houston was really doing. I mean, Houston switched is everything and i thought that minnesota yeah. didn't exploit that one of i, I will but. i will uh disagree with that i mean he looked fine now i mean there's this wrist issue i suppose for butler and he ended up right. four of 11 that's what that's what i think it was yeah and, and maybe he was tired from guarding harden as well um but that you know that's fine that's the one advantage of having all these redundant shot creators is like jimmy butler doesn't have to be the guy for you cre- creating shots um but I thought a lot of it was Houston's defense. I mean, Butler, to me, is not at the level of some of these other ISO scores. Like, you know, the guy on the other team, James Harden. Um, 
and especially with the lack of spacing for the wolves i mean really everything that we thought would happen with houston's defense uh to the wolves did the wolves no plan to attack the switches other than just hey maybe we'll try and post up although they suck at post entries and they if it's taj gibson they're not very good at passing out of the post or all right we'll get the switch and now back up to half court and try and attack them one-on-one you know i mean that really was all the plan they had and you i mean the good teams at that they had to know houston was switching but the wolves don't have a system right if it's the warriors for example okay you switch well now i've got inside position on you i'm going to roll to the rim and we, and we can throw it to you or hey uh we're going to bring this guy off a screen i know you're switching i'm going to screen my own man so that now you can't switch you know there's just zero subtlety i don't think the wolves got a single system bucket in the entire game that i can recall um and carl towns was totally stymied as well he played 40 minutes three of nine uh really just did not have and the fact that he would only have two three-point attempts as well i mean you'd hope that he could get some more chances there uh so they houston just was able to shrink the floor off of all their non-shooters or guys who just weren't spacing out even to begin with and the wolves had to go one-on-one and i mean they earned what was not a great offensive performance because they weren't getting good shots minnesota got more manageable minute totals from jeff teague and andrew wiggins only because those guys were in foul trouble teague picked up three fouls in the first quarter and then had to deal with that he actually didn't commit another foul i think it was until the third and then wiggins got in foul trouble i believe was in the third quarter and so he had to sit longer than anticipated but it's not like wiggins was having a a great top to bottom game and so they were they were really missing him but you know jamal crawford Derek rose those guys have talent in specific areas but are limited defensively they're you know even though i thought rose did a better job on on harden in particular than i ever would have thought and they just didn't trust any of the other guys in their bench tyce jones barely played gorgie jang barely played and other than hitting a couple shots i didn't think he looked good out there and i am a supporter of namani bielitsa i think he should play more he didn't really get that at least he spaces the floor and at least he like is a smart player they have no passing on this team like that's another big problem right i mean who's the best passer on this team like maybe butler uh, maybe towns out of the post but you know they don't really emphasize that you know wiggins can't pass gibson is a horrible passer teague is below average for a point guard uh he ended up with eight assists and i, and I thought he was he was really their most dynamic guy attacking the switches he was able at least to get it in the lane and, and that's that's the other thing that i thought they really failed to do and that they can't do against these switches is they can't get into the paint and drive and kick right it's always for that guy to score right uh, who gets the uh, gets the switch and teague at least on a few occasions is able to go to that strong left-handed drive blow by someone like nene and, and at least you know force some help in the paint and try and kick it out but uh overall i just thought i hated their offensive approach they have so much talent on this team usually they're able to just out talent the opposition maybe get some offensive boards that wasn't really a key part of what they were doing towns is the only guy who was able to do that uh and then Towns, you know, was horrible getting back on defense, too. That's one of his big problems. And and defensively for the Wolves, we mentioned the 10 out of 37 for three. I thought the Rockets just ganked a ton of layups in the second quarter where Towns was kind of there. And, you know, he'll look good on the sport view stats of like, oh, he contested at the rim and they missed. But he wasn't forcing those misses. They were just missing him. He maybe forced a couple, you know, throughout the course of the game. Um, And so it was just, this was their chance. Uh, They're not as good as the Rockets. And, you know, I, we haven't spent enough time talking about Harden yet I guess but you know there's nothing to say about him I mean he's just hitting awesome impossible 
step backs uh even against someone like butler well, and his drives were were great yeah. too especially in the fourth quarter as he was salting away the game you know the other guys were missing shots around carl anthony towns james harden was not he also had a nice dunk on one of those drives and also baited derrick rose into a couple fouls earlier in the game which ended up you know being important as the margin got closer in this the other we talked we talked about how a lot of the support players for the rockets had bad games that happens but also i thought chris paul really struggled he also had a nearly ah, catastrophic oh, yeah. too strong but he had he had a heinous turnover late where i i really like this harken back to a game earlier in the season i think that was was that against the bucks where minnesota ran a trap late and just completely dumbfounded a team and forced a turnover and so minnesota actually had a at least conceptually had a chance to tie the game with a three but then that possession was pretty emblematic of their struggles in the game yeah paul i mean he just threw it over eric gordon's head um i mean that that was ghosts of uh 2015 or uh, 2014 game five against okc for paul on that one and so you know minnesota down three no time outs left they put jamal crawford in the game and jamal crawford is being guarded by harden just throw it to i I mean you know all right jimmy butler's the star he's got to be the guy but he's being guarded by pj tucker james harden is zero lateral movement defensively jamal crawford is one of the all-time best guys to create a three-pointer off the dribble that's going to be a difficult shot in a situation like that throw him the ball against james harden and he could have gotten an open shot to tie the game and they just you know then he just ran to the corner and then butler somehow went to a spin move didn't even get a three-pointer off he took like a long two and, and that was that was the game um but i mean the biggest thing to take away from this number one wolves miss chance number two james harden seven to twelve on three-pointers all extremely difficult attempts one of the big questions of the playoffs was is james harden going to be able to continue shooting this type of percentage on these ridiculous step back shots uh, from three in isos late in games and he just worked the minnesota timberwolves for 44 points on 29 shooting possessions I also thought the Rockets missed both Mbamute, his defense, yeah. you know, having Gerald Green basically as the primary non-Eric Gordon off the bench was was a different look for them. It didn't work out super well. But also Ryan Anderson, just for the variability. Nene only yeah. played 11 minutes, and I don't think Ryan Anderson would have played much. But just to have a player who gets the opposing defenders out of the lane even more could have been useful. And Capella played great. I don't think he really wanted want to do too much with his minutes. But just having that other look would have been useful for them. Capella was awesome as a switch guy too i thought nene was a little bit easier to be attacked there but capella they had zero success trying to go at him uh, on switches um you know i thought the wolves went to andrew wiggins in the post i liked that again i mean they're like they could if they just had some more spacing they could actually be very successful against this team one-on-one but it just you know again taj gibson is going to be out there he's going to play you know he played 32 minutes i, I agree i'd like to see more belita especially when harden is off the floor you know i'd like to see belita play every minute there and i thought actually i mean the wolves did a pretty good job defensively on harden um you know they it was mostly Harden scoring over his primary defender they avoided this switch on those small small pick and rolls Tibbs did have them pretty well drilled on that even Jamal Crawford was doing a great job of hedging out and not uh having to switch on those small small pick and rolls late but you know Harden just was too good it didn't matter who was guarding him down the end um all right I think that's all I got uh, on this game anything else you wanted to add uh, not really. I, I think that it solidified how I feel about the series, and I don't know. You can take what, take from that what you will. Yeah, I think I, I thought the same way. And the Rockets were as bad as they could have possibly been. 
I will say that if Gerald Green has to play a significant role in the Western Conference Finals against a healthy Warriors team, that's not going to work very well. Um, but we're a long way away from there, of course. I mean, this is kind of our wrap-up. This is the last part we're recording. Obviously, we're going to do Saturdays too. But uh, do you, which series changed the most for you in your mind? Well, I guess I feel more confident. You mean in, in both, in in the whole thing? Yeah, 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 yeah. We'll do, do the whole thing. I mean, people know what happened in the Saturday games, obviously. Yeah, so I guess it's probably six heat just because they were able to put more together offensively than I expected them to against Miami and sure some parts of that I mean Marco Bellinelli's not going to go insane necessarily to that degree again but Miami's I still worry about what they're going to do offensively and so I you know I picked the Sixers in seven games partially because of that uncertainty and yes Joel Embiid coming back could actually help us on Whiteside because it just gives him a place to be but a that's not happening until game three at the earliest and b I just thought the Sixers had had more they had more juice than I expected and yes I mean they're coming off a 16 game win streak but Miami is a challenging opponent so I'd say that's the one where it shifted for me the most and after game two it absolutely could be Indiana Cleveland I was more sanguine about the Sixers chances in that series picking it in six so uh, just the way they had dominated down the stretch of the regular season and how well all those guys were playing so I, I didn't expect them to work Miami quite that badly but that one didn't change too much for me um I thought Milwaukee Boston Utah OKC Minnesota Houston pretty much towards the form that I was expecting same thing with New Orleans Portland um, although I, I did pick Portland in seven but I thought that would be a very competitive series probably the most unexpected result to me was just Golden State completely throttling San Antonio and just how bad San Antonio looked I mean that was that was pretty remarkable and then obviously the other one I, I picked uh, Cleveland in five over Indiana so that that uh, you know Cleveland's gonna have to win four straight now with that which they're certainly capable of but it, it was a spiriting loss for Cleveland but I mean I I had the Warriors in seven over the Spurs uh, and the Spurs defense was just such trash in that first game the thought was this was going to be a rock fight and uh that certainly was not the case um all right we'll get to the other four games momentarily here first though this from Indochino I'm actually trusting Indochino to do all of the suits for my weddings and weddings how, how about wedding i'm only getting married once uh at least i hope so <laughs> on a number of levels but so i've actually got seven groomsmen and there are, happen to be indochino showrooms that they are really expanding now uh, around north america so in all of the cities in which my groomsmen live there is an indochino showroom so they are going to be able to go in get measured and get a made to measure suit to wear at the wedding courtesy of indochino i'm actually going to wear one of their tuxes and you can pick your fabric. They're not going to get to pick their fabric, though. I will be... Actually, no. Who am I kidding? My fiance will be telling them <laughs> what fabric they will be wearing. Uh, but you can personalize the details, like the lapel, the jacket line. If you want to get single-breasted, double-breasted, a monogram. They do shirts as well. Uh, we're going to all get shirts from Indochino. And it just it's going to fit so much better, especially a suit jacket, man. Like, when you get one of those suit jackets, like, I've got the kind of, like, a small chest and big shoulders. And so, like, I can't even, like, move my arms around. I'm, like, feeling worried that, like... It's it's going to tear the suit jacket in the shoulders yeah then i got indochino and it actually fits three weeks or less is the amount of time that it takes and if you can't get to a showroom they have a tutorial on how to do your measurements online you can send them in 
For this week, my listeners may get their own premium Indochino suit for a mere $359 at Indochino.com, entering that familiar cap space code at checkout. Over 50% off the regular price for a premium made-to-measure suit. Shipping is free. That's Indochino.com promo code CAPSPACE to get any premium suit for just $359 plus free shipping. You're just going to be amazed at how well this fits, and you can never go back to off-the-rack suits ever again after Indochino. Use that cap space code. Let them know that you came from us let's get to saturday's games now and i think uh, the place to start is with this new orleans portland game the blazers trailed throughout most of the game by double digits trailed by 13 with under six minutes to go then roared back on an 18 to 5 run only to ultimately fall 97 95 they were within one had a couple of chances to tie it in the final minute and were not able to get it done um i think actually where i want to start here danny is just the last minute of the game or so and maybe the last two minutes it was 93 87 after the blazers had already made a lot of their comeback and uh i didn't really care for just in general the and they played a great game we'll get to that don't worry but i didn't really care for the pels offensive strategy or or personnel down the end did you feel similarly yeah uh, broadly speaking i did so the the personnel issue was really having ian clark out there instead of etuan moore or in certain defensive possessions anybody else who was a better (laughs) defender well the broadcast was saying they liked clark's defense which uh and he's maybe been a little better this year but either they really the rest of the options really suck or uh you know ian clark has gotten a lot better he hasn't gotten that much better since golden state when he was not a quality defensive option the other guys not not as much of an issue there but then in terms of offensive personnel yes Rajon Rondo had a very strong statistical game and we'll get into some of the other is the score of the game is that a statistic the score of the game when he's in there is that something that (laughs) is that a statistic that that we're allowed to refer to with Rondo the only the only statistic that counts as a oh don't don't forget defensive rebounds as well and turnover turnovers don't count although he only had two turnovers but yeah he but but so they were running a lot through him and and I think maybe a part of that we will say a lot of nice things about Drew Holiday in in the in your term but he had these two really strange decisions right right before this final stretch where he one got the ball with like four seconds left after an inbound and did then just threw a flaming bag which i don't even think he intended that way and the shot clock expired i think i can't remember who had who i think it was Ian quark maybe who had that ball and then holiday tried to throw he got a, a turnover i believe and tried to throw an outlet pass to davis when they had the lead i think they were up by four or five at that point and davis just there wasn't a line to get the ball to him Lillard stole it and that got that, oh I thought that was there the actually I think he just didn't throw it quite far enough I thought that actually I mean because Davis was at the free throw line and Lillard cut in front of him if you just throw that a little further it'll go right over Lillard's head but uh so I thought that was a good idea and poor execution but uh that's possible too I I saw it more as that that basically that the time it would take for the ball to get there was going to allow somebody else yeah. there because there were a couple blazers in the area but it again it's kind of six in one hand half dozen. yeah so and I mean you know all right i get i'm never gonna win this battle of rondo not closing the game especially when he has 17 assists um and i get that uh 
I don't understand why you would play Ian Clark over Etwan Moore. I don't think that Clark is the particularly superior shooter and Moore has more size defensively. Um, I mean, you've got Ian Clark on CJ McCollum, and, and then also Clark as a help defender is going to be undersized. But and I thought the other problem they had too in that run was you know every single play was Rondo run the time down and then run a pick and roll. And like the, the thing is, Rondo is a good pick and roll player, but he's generally not going to be the guy to score. And so you can run a pick and roll with Rondo, but do it early, you know, and I think they went into kill the clock mode a little bit too early and then you know if you're starting with eight on the shot clock with rondo running a pick and roll you know he can't really shoot a pull-up jump shot off the dribble and that's like when you don't have that option it's just it's going to take longer to get to a good shot there and it's a little bit paralleling this but one concern i had with gentry's management late and i get part of the idea behind this was that the pelicans looked completely gassed they were working there especially their big guys working them really hard and you could see those results defensively and Gentry was pretty fastidious about keeping his last two timeouts and I understand absolutely keeping at least one and it looked like especially as the game was getting closer that it was going to be close late but having his guys a little bit more fresh for those last two minutes as opposed to the last like 30 seconds might have made it a close enough game where we wouldn't be breaking down this last minute in such exquisite detail. Or you, you mean enough of a blowout that we wouldn't have to do that? That they would have they would have put it away early. Well, at least may, maybe not a blowout, but maybe they're up seven with a minute to go, and then we don't have we don't do this in the same way, seven or ten or whatever. But of course, we do do it in this way, and that's because it, it got close late. So it's still a six point game with two minute left. Pels massive favorites uh that was after Rondo really got one of their two buckets down the stretch. The other one was a play where I think it was Clark got stripped going to the rim and then they actually managed to get it into the corner and then Clark or no it wasn't Clark Clark actually hit the three it just kind of bounced to the corner maybe it was Holiday who got stripped and then they threw it to Clark up top as the shot clock was running down uh so Rondo actually was able to get a layup off of that ice coverage forcing him towards the baseline and the big kind of it was Nurkic just kind of stuck with AD um and after that, they went to a Nurkic post-up on Miritic. It's interesting that uh, I'm not sure what the rhyme or reason was for like when each of these guys guarded who, but they had Nurkic guarding, or I'm sorry, Miritic guarding Nurkic quite a bit. And then they had Davis guarding Aminu for a time. So they tried to get a post-up and Nico did a good job knowing that on the right block, Nurkic likes to turn baseline and go to that hook shot off the glass. He was right there. And... They get the offensive rebound. Once again, a side pick and roll with Damon and Nurkic. Nurkic rolls right to the rim, and Ian Clark is the only guy there to help. Nurk just somehow blows the layup, and Evan Turner, you know, I thought he had a poor game, obviously. He, he, he did some nice things defensively, but uh, he had an amazing putback and uh, a, a left lefty falling out of bounds really impressive there. I, I exclaimed on that as I was doing the Twitter NBA show after dark edition. So four-point game, Rondo, same play, the ice coverage on the left, drives to his left. And this time, the big Nurkic actually stayed back. Rondo kind of beat him, but he was still under pressure from behind. And AD was just wide open back at the three-point line. Rondo never saw him, and he threw a, a layup basically almost over the backboard. And then they got out in transition. Dame went to an early pick and roll with New Orleans not matched up. And they managed to get a wide open three for Evan Turner. And 
uh i was just like here's turner for three uh, he missed it because you just you knew he was gonna miss that wide open corner three but uh dame got the offensive rebound they kicked it out it was turner on the right wing everyone closed to him cj was then in the corner they threw it to cj he hit a three so that got him within one 93 92 uh at that point any reaction to, to that sequence well the turner play was emblematic of a just a structural challenge that the blazers are going to have to deal with in mohawkers's absence which is that turner was a safety valve for new orleans they basically were not closing out as hard to him that was allowing them to kind of keep their defense together by not respecting his ability to shoot and in this game i would say overall while as you said he did certain things well defensively he only took four threes and there were a few times where he passed them up where where they could have gone in and i mean one for four isn't exactly dangerous anyway and so but the bigger concern for me here was new orleans Orleans' offense I didn't think they were really getting into getting into that much and I think that really continued so one point game and New Orleans has the ball now as as they've taken this lead has gone from double digits to single digits to one and they basically have to get a score to kind of keep momentum yeah and they drove kicked it to Clark pretty late in the clock as they again ran the time down a little bit longer than I would have here with a one point lead I think you're more you really would it'd be nice to try and prioritize scoring I don't know if that extra five seconds is going to be that useful when you've run the time down so much but and uh Clark tries to drive and he ends up getting stripped by Turner and I thought uh, before we get to what happened after that this is an example this end of game of why it is that I think bigs can just never be as valuable as guards offensively down the end of the game you know we, we like we did some stats as we went into the mvp race about and first team all of nba about usage and clutch usage and so ad's clutch usage was like yeah 29 you know not not amazing you know lebron's is like over 50 percent, and like there's guys in the 40s most of the the good guards are in the 40s and so you know ad i think has been fine in the clutch this year but there's a couple of reasons it's so difficult number one you can just lock in on trying to deny him the ball it takes time and then number two especially if you're ahead down the end and you're trying to run the time down they're really if you're going with 10 seconds on the shot clock it's very difficult to just get that big the ball right because it, you have to throw it to him then he's got to turn and face and then maybe he gets doubled and he's got to pass out of it and there just isn't time for all that you have to have if you're running the time down you got to give it to a guard and let him create you got to have someone who can go off the dribble and of course because rondo can't really go off the dribble and score he wasn't really wouldn't have been my choice there um so then they've got Clark trying to drive. He gets stripped by Turner and it's a three on two. Nurkic running the floor. CJ has it. They've got a Minu down there as well. It's only Rondo and Drew Holiday back looking like the Blazers are going to take the lead for sure and just one of the best defensive plays that I've seen in a long time Holiday who was amazing this whole game gets CJ reaches in makes CJ pick up his dribble and then also with his other hand the opposite one that he reached in from knocks away CJ's pass for a deflection and the Pels just get it right back it was just an incredible play I mean like Nurkic was going to be wide open if he could have completed that pass to him for a dunk uh and Drew Holiday just stopped him. It was awesome. He was able to... It it was incredible how he forced the change of decision and then disabled the change in decision yeah. at exactly the same time it's a, a play that you don't see very often and you almost never see against an opposing offensive player as talented as cj mccullum and it was jaw-dropping and really that only started setting the tone for what drew holiday did defensively at the end of this game i i had written earlier that i was i was excited to see casual fans get it get an appreciation for how good holiday is defensively he's been a 
amazing. And I had some Pelicans fans like, oh, we've been saying it all the time. It's like, no, Drew Holiday has been amazing defensively since he is relatively early days on the Sixers. It's just that the opportunity has been different. And I'm, yeah. Well, I'm he's so also playing at a much, much team. higher intensity level. You know, oh, I yeah. Mean, oh, yeah. And the, the, those games, like, you know, that was more like you, I would see him shut down Steph Curry, but then it was, you know, he would, it wouldn't be as consistent. And also, as it inevitably happens, being better offensively helps people kind of get a sense of that because he can be on the floor more, coaches trust him more, and everything like that. So then New Orleans went to a Spain pick and roll, which we talk about often here, but just to refresh your memory, it's a shooter setting a back screen for a big who has just set a pick and roll and is rolling to the rim. So part one is, you know, you can get the big rolling to the rim with no help behind him. You can look for the alley-oop. If that's not there, they've helped on the back screen, then the shooter is going to pop out to the top. They did that. To Clark actually covered it up, but then AD, instead of continuing his roll to the rim, actually popped back out himself and was able to get a pretty open three. He had to step back a little bit on Nurkic, but that rimmed out. And so then the Blazers... I did not really care for calling this timeout um, to advance the ball because the ball had gone out of bounds. There was a replay review for a long time, and then they advanced the ball using one of their timeouts that they really could have stood to have back at the end when they were going for quick two. So I didn't really like that. And then they ran one pick and roll with Nurkic and Damon. They had put at this point ad back on a nurkic uh so that that worked out well ad great pick and roll defense gets up to the level of the screen allows holiday to get back into it and retreat and i thought both coaches really had some curious personnel the blazers missed a chance to get turner off the floor and you've got I and mean, if you're gonna have turner on the floor like he should be involved in the action right but like he's just standing in the opposite corner they just forgot to take him out i think because i i want to say that they even took him out later for Connaughton, <laughs> which uh with hilarious results but uh so rondo then you know ad can get up to the level of the screen rondo who to me is a not a very good defender certainly not one-on-one probably should have been in there but he, he did an okay job at least helping off of turner at least initially you still got ian clark in there as well i mean like why is solomon hill on this roster i know he's coming off that hamstring injury but like he's playing in this game like why not just throw him in there at, at the three you can switch more you you can get a defensive rebound the rebounding was absolutely killing them i mean that's a, a part of two of, of their issues right like yeah i mean 15 15 offensive of rebounds for the Blazers and that doesn't include I, I can recall at least two times where there were fouls which are count yeah. as this team and, rebounds not and as... especially in the, that comeback they were getting killed on the offensive glass um so and then it really did not make a, a ton of sense uh but then Drew was back on Dame Dame instead of getting a rescreen he just went one-on-one at Drew kind of got past him and then attempted to jump back into him for the foul you know didn't want to go all the way to the rim with Davis there and Drew did an amazing job jumping out of the way of dame to avoid committing the foul dame uh, really was hamstrung with the shot uh, it looked like Nurkic was going to get another offensive rebound and then Rondo was able to crash down he made a nice play I mean I guess you know Rondo is better as a help defender he has good help instincts and so I, I thought he did okay on that possession still anytime he's put in pick and roll he's just going to completely give it up or if he's playing defense in the post so and, and I think a big adjustment for game two would be let's go at Rondo more we'll talk about game two adjustments momentarily here um so then uh ended up uh with ad getting fouled hits a couple of free throws so now it's a three-point game and then uh the blazers really uh you know kind of failed math class here especially because they used their last timeout to advance the ball yeah so they're down three with 12.4 seconds left and they bring in myers leonard so you're going okay portland you yeah. know they hadn't played all game by the way myers leonard shooter. 
hadn't played all game. You know, this has been such a rough season for him. And they end up never taking a three. And so what happens is Leonard, they get, Leonard gets the ball inside the yeah. arc. They, they did at least set and, a screen to try and bring someone to the top and then they switched it. And sure. Leonard kind of had inside position, but uh, was that Drew again, by the way, who yeah, knocked it, that away? It was, right? It was yeah. Drew Holiday again. Unbelievable. And I, and you could, and that ball was close to being out on Myers Leonard, but you can't reverse a call in that circumstance you know it's kind of kind of like a football review where if you rule it one way you need incontrovertible video evidence and they didn't have that so portland gets the ball back and our good friend blessed with the 44 inch vertical patrick Connaughton tries to get a, a layup again down three points yeah and that play definitely was four or two i think the first one at least it was like okay we're setting a screen to get him open i think that might have been more of a player error to throw it to myers leonard for a two um or you could just say to throw it to myers leonard either way both if he was open for a three might as well let it you know take it if you're down three but yeah i mean to not you've got dame lillard and a great ability to to get his own shot for a three you know same thing with cj mccollum how do you never even get those guys the ball outside the three-point arc on those possessions i mean that's really a failure to be sure and then ad hit another couple of free throws after that great drew holiday block and Connaughton actually he got stopped on another fast break too and just was lucky that the ball kind of curled over the rim as he was going up for a dunk so uh yeah and, and also hey you'll remember this too uh in that game at the end of the regular season in new orleans holiday just like stopped Connaughton as well going Going in for a dunk, I think. Oh man, yeah, it's uh, Drew Holiday owns Pat Connaughton at the rim. But I mean, let's count it off here again. Just in the last minute, Holiday stops that three on two. He plays great defense on Dame without fouling. He knocks away the pass to Myers Leonard out of bounds, and then he blocks Pat Connaughton at the rim in the space of like forty seconds. And overall, just really made Dame's life pretty miserable. Six out of twenty-three for Dame. Uh, four of nine from three, amazingly. So uh, on twos, he was two out of fourteen, and AD obviously had a big part of that as well. Dame did at least have seven assists. Uh, I thought so. I mean, Holiday, we had thought, hey, you know what? Like, I thought it was a good suggestion by you put him on cj we'll erase cj and then we'll just trap dame uh and get the ball out of his hands that way but you know if drew can play this well just in pretty conventional style pick and roll defense against dame you might as well roll with it Agreed. Holiday was incredible on on that in this game, and he had a, a good scoring night as well. Twenty one points, ten of twenty from the field, one of five from three. It wasn't it wasn't great, but it was it was one of the you know what I would say one of the better offensive nights for a Pelican in this game. Ian Clark, as much as we didn't like him being in the end of the game, was productive in his own offense, but overall was not on the floor in some of the the Pelicans' best lineups. But I, I also want to caution people on a lot of that stuff, and this came up at the broadcast. You you were what I'm not sure if you were doing the t- Twitter show at that point was like, you know, oh, well, you know, like Connaughton and Ed Davis and Zach Collins and those guys were out there. The Blazers were successful. Well, you know why the Blazers were successful in a lot of their minutes? Because Anthony goddamn Davis was not on the floor. And it's a lot easier to look good when the other team's best player and often best two players are not on the floor. Such a delight to see Davis back in the playoffs. 35 points, 14 of 26 from the field, 7 of 9 from the foul line, including 4 of 4 in the, in the last 20 seconds. 14 rebounds, four blocks, two steals, only three turnovers, which is not that many for when you're taking that many shots. Not really an assist guy. And Rondo, we mentioned he had 17 assists, six points, three of nine from the field. And while I do think that, like, you know, Rondo 
start the game with him i think that's okay you know down the end i'd like to see the ball more in drew holiday's hands than rondo's i mean that's the other problem with running everything through rondo is drew holiday is standing in the corner with his hands on his knees most of these possessions you know he's not it's not like rondo is doing some great job setting up drew holiday drew holiday is best working in pick and roll himself so uh and i think you know just having holiday with the ball in his hands another shooter out there someone who's better defensively would make more sense i know rondo had 17 assists uh i think he had a lot of those assists to ad which helped a lot um and ad just had some crushing dunks in this he just all an oop all over the back of evan turner on one of these plays that rondo set him up for i mean so you know I, i'm not saying like rondo has been solid in a lot of these games but like 39 minutes seems a little excessive for him um interesting that check diallo played 10 minutes and solomon hill only six you know he's hill neither of those guys did they didn't play well with either of them on the floor really uh darius miller 14 minutes those the only and clark were the only guys to play off the bench i mean i love that they're just starting ad at center i think he's caused massive matchup problems here for the pels the combination of he and miritich miritich was four of ten from three hit some huge transition threes in the third quarter as they really built out their lead um what else you got on this game well, I thought Miritich played a better defensive yes. game than I expected. And that was important for New Orleans' overall kind of continuity on that end. He did a nice job reacting to circumstances, fighting for defensive rebounds. One of the guys who wasn't really to blame as much from, from my eyes for some of their issues on that end. And it looks like he's communicating well as, as a part of the system. You know, he's never going to be the linchpin, but as a functional piece, Miritich did what was needed. And I think that was really important. Yeah, 40 minutes for him and he also had four steals or four blocks and two steals so eight blocks and four steals out of your starting bigs and and gentry wrote his starters for sure you know 40 minutes for mirotic 41 for ad rondo and holiday both 39 minutes uh and more 27 um for the blazers you know evan turner 15 shots and he throughout the thir- first three quarters he actually was leading the blazers in shot attempts that's exactly what the pels want him to do dame and cj just a nightmare first half combined one out of 13 the broadcast noted that that was the worst that they had ever shot combined in a half in their careers uh and, and cj and dame both got it going they actually ended up a, a combined eight out of 19 from three which is totally fine percentage a lot of that was pushing the ball late um ed davis i thought was well, solid. Yeah, one thing what, wait sorry one thing we should mention with those two guys is they also only combined for three free throw attempts and yeah. i know some pelicans fans were arguing that that was because the officiating was bad though there were a couple plays where it was you know judgment calls davis i thought was doing a great job of contesting making things hard and i thought lillard more so than you see normally was a little bit intimidated that he was he wasn't going for his drives with the same zeal that he often does and and that could be an adjustment that happens over the course of the series gets into his lane a little bit more and a couple of Lillard shots late weren't against Drew Holiday they were in transition or in other opportunities and I get that Drew Holiday is amazing defensively so I think those guys will be better in future games of the series but I think the the biggest thing that should concern Blazers fans is let's say it's a small step back you know just a half step not anything like what happened in the first half of this game who can step up and pick and pick up whatever slack remains especially offensively because they just they don't have that many other guys 
because I guess maybe some of that goes to Napier, but Evan Turner can't really pick up that slack. Nurkic is more of a dependent player. Ideally, you don't want him to be, you know, dominant offensively just because those possession ball dominance doesn't really suit him. So you, I think you, I actually thought that was a criticism I had of Portland with that. There were certain times where they're just like letting Evan Turner go, letting all these guys go. And it's like, hey, CJ and Dame are your guys. If it doesn't work with them, it's just not going to work. So you go to them until like, as long as you can. Lillard and McCollum, I mentioned there are combined eight out of 19 on threes. Rest of team, four out of 20. Nobody hitting more than one. Aminu, one of five. Turner, one of four in the starting lineup. Collins, one of four. Napier, oh, three. Connaughton, one of four. Um, so hopefully those guys can shoot it a little better. Aminu in particular. Uh, but you know, I don't expect that from Turner necessarily. And given all the times that he was wide open i mean you know he's got to shoot a lot more and make a lot more to obviate that strategy but i think given all that so their defense or their offensive struggles in the half court the big difference when they finally started scoring transition they actually and some of that was turnovers from the pels some of it was dumb gambles for offensive rebounds but when they push the ball and the Blazers remember are last in transition frequency and the Pels you know they really try hard to get back so they only had a 15% offensive rebound rate in this one Portland had 26% so I think I like them crashing the offensive glass uh to some extent I think that's a, a way to create some more points Nurkic could do a little bit more there you you would hope um and Turner did well on the offensive glass to four offensive rebounds but trans pushing the ball in transition would be number one and then I think number two we talked about this you know maybe less a little bit less of Turner or maybe even try to you know play Turner a little bit at the four as well and and maybe not so much the two big lineups with Davis and Collins if AD is out there I probably wouldn't go with either Davis or Collins with both of those guys together at the same time um because they, they got to find some ways to score they got to get more shooting on the floor I and mean, they got up 39 three-point attempts that's a good number but half of those basically are Damon cj and then you know the other guys just aren't hitting the rest of them so that that would be one i'd like to see them try a little bit more i mean because it's not like the pels are playing anybody at the three either right and it's not like there's anyone that turner needs to guard you know i think he did an okay job at times but it's a, there's no big threat that like oh we need turner's size out here so that's uh that might be what i'd look at for the blazers anything else that sticks out for you about what they could do differently in game two not particularly i i wrote at one point you know evan turner is is going to be a problem in this series and it's not necessarily his fault it's just that they don't have any other alternatives and that lack of suitability is is a problem if mo harkless has to miss more time and we expect that he will that's the way it happens with knee injuries and i would consider at certain moments and and there are obviously more complicated personality and personnel decisions in play here but if you look at what portland is looking for in those spots i don't think he's nearly as good a player but even just having pat Connaughton out there to, to if what you're trying to do is take and make open threes napier just has too many flaws to like he's so small i think there are some limitations that you run into with him against the bells but i'm i might even consider i'm not saying i would necessarily do it i need to watch more of content and he was not particularly impressive overall for me in this game it was more that he played at times when the other team's players were out but looking at what you need and what is available at that moment you know for some of the time playing next to damon cj i think it could work there's another thing that terry says i almost never have seen him do but it's really not that hard to do and we saw houston do this a little bit i thought they even could have done it more 
in the series against the Spurs last year, late in the series, which is early in the possession. Okay, you're bringing the ball up court. Just to go have Evan Turner or, you know, who's being guarded by Rondo or CJ McCollum, even who's being guarded by Ian Clark or Etuan Moore. Just have that guy just go set a screen for Dame Lillard right away at the start of the possession and then run whatever you're going to run. Yeah, you, you know who who did that really well? The Clippers against the Blazers before Chris Paul before Chris Paul and Blake Griffin got hurt. Yeah, um, and, you know, put make Ray John Rondo guard Damian Lillard in the pick and roll. I mean, and it, you, don't, you don't have to like, okay, we're going to break our offense and let him go one-on-one. It doesn't, I mean, they're running slow as hell anyway. Just go have someone set a drag screen in transition, especially if it's tr- in transition or semi-transition after a miss. And just give Dame Lillard a, a breather and let him go against Rondo or go against Ian Clark or... or someone instead of just having to fight and fight and fight against drew holiday who is just unbelievable and this is drew holiday played the best defensive game and i even and i was saying this even before the last minute of the game like the best defensive game by a guard that i can remember in a long time i mean protecting the rim help defense uh, steals it was just getting into dame like cutting him off it was just unbelievable what he was doing out there i i he doesn't bring it all the time like this in the regular season but i mean he's reaching a level defensively that i don't i haven't seen a point guard reach in a long time and like people used to talk about oh how good avery bradley was avery bradley had never had a defensive game that i can recall like that and Bradley was more of that one-on-one yeah. specialist, which is super impressive. And it gets into something you and I have talked about at various moments, that one-on-one offense and one-on-one defense are very prized and sometimes maybe overprized. But Drew Holiday excelled in help capacities on top of having a ludicrously hard one-on-one assignment. And one element of this that I think is a, a broader concern for the for the Blazers than, you know, Damon CJ having rough nights, that, that can happen is, yes, we should acknowledge that I, I will assume they will have I, I will anticipate that they will have better games than this portland attempted 12 more field goals than new orleans and attempted two more free throws and still lost this game yeah they were they won they dominated on the offensive glass they actually committed two fewer turnovers and that margin tightening up can consume some of the gains that they can get from those guards and i don't think that new orleans is ever going to be a dominant defensive rebounding team in this series we have haven't really seen that from them they're choosing to go with ad and nikola mirtich together and there are certain benefits to that and i agree with that approach but the extremes generally lead to regressions to the mean and so i think both of those things coming from one direction and the other might mitigate some of the gains that portland will make yeah and as you mentioned too they got to get to the foul line lillard you know he's really done an amazing job of getting into you know close to 10 free throw attempts a game at times and uh only to be two of two was pretty difficult and that but the pels ad is amazing you know without fouling for a big to contest as many shots as he did and to only get four fouls and a couple of them were dubious in 41 minutes very impressive all right so we went long on that one but i that was a really interesting strategic series to me uh let's do where do you want to go next actually i'll leave it up to you let's go with the game that immediately preceded this we talked about it for the twitter nba show i was really impressed with the way that philadelphia responded after going down so they had an early lead in this game and then miami ended up pushing their own lead to i think it was about eight and then miami had a lead at halftime and philadelphia just came back and delivered an absolutely masterful second half that started with exploiting Hassan Whiteside, but then continued long after 
he was out of the game. Yeah, and that'll be the big story that Whiteside, you know, spoke, called timeout, tried to like get it to work. Brett Brown went to the adjustment in the start of the second half with Ilyasova at center. And they put up 74 second half points. And I mean, the, the shooting from both teams from three in this game was ridiculous. The Sixers were 18 out of 28. And all of their, they in fact, they had six guys who attempted a three-pointer. One of them was Furkan Korkmaz in garbage time. None of those players shot worse than 50% from three. And only one of them, uh, Covington, shot 50%. Saric, four out of six. Redick, four out of six. Ilyasova, three out of four. Bellinelli, who hit some ridiculous shots in this one for 25 points and was plus 27 and, and has been really outstanding since he's gotten to the Sixers. He was four out of seven. Um, Really just unbelievable three-point shooting uh, on some not easy attempts. I mean, this is a good Miami defensive team. But, you know, I, I, I distracted myself looking at the box score from Whiteside. We thought he would be really important in this series. We thought that he could play really well because, hey, Ben Simmons used to lay back at the rim on him but brett brown did an awesome job i thought of attacking him and then the coup de gras was going with Ilyasova to start the second half and whiteside just gave up backdoor layups they set screens Ilyasova is a cagey screen setter for uh whiteside was never going to get out on those guys at the three-point line and spo tried to rehabilitate him in a timeout it didn't work and they just took him out it was also jarring on certain possessions to see Whiteside guarding Sharich who is an even more aggressive and capable three-point shooter than Ilyasova and you're sitting there going well what is the advantage gained here yeah no yeah that's right actually it was Sharich more often even than it was Ilyasova and watching the way that the the Sixers did it because one of the elements that you and I thought was so compelling about the series was that the Sixers don't really run a lot of pick and roll and so it was the idea of well how are you going to get Whiteside involved then what they did was they didn't run really pick and rolls but they just involved the player that Whiteside was guarding out on the floor in the action so if you're going to set a screen or something if you're going to be involved in an action and only one of the two defensive players is even in the area well somebody's going to be open somewhere and so sometimes that was charged for three other times it was you know they could involve Redick they could they did a lot of different things to create quality looks and then they turned that on its head a lot of times early on it was for threes then they started getting those some of those backdoor lay because it was you know pulling out a little bit and then you create space on the backside and then Miami a couple times I thought they tried to tried to feed Whiteside the ball there was one time where they did kind of a, a weird DHO with him where they gave him the ball it was off a, off an out of bounds play they gave him the ball and then he handed it off but they never touched it again and Whiteside will have more of a place to, to be in this series when Joel Embiid returns whenever that is but it was a really encouraging I think this is one of the biggest takeaways from Saturday's games that Brett Brown, who has been involved in playoffs before as a as an assistant, you know, is with San Antonio, but as a head coach to say, this is the advantage that we can create for ourselves and not only putting in the personnel to execute it, but putting in the game plan so that Miami did it. And what it reminded me of is the entire, the, the main point of Hacka in most forms is to get that player, off, the, the player in question off the floor. And what Philly did was they got that player off the floor but they also did it by generating reliable offensive looks and facing none of the downside that intentionally fouling creates just so impressed with this philly offense and it's really been like this since Embiid went out and Embiid, for all of his gifts and certainly the defense is much better with him out there Embiid is a little bit of a ball stopper and now the ball never stops and we talked about this during the tour nba show that 
all of these sets all, all of their offense reddick it, it really he is the guy to me and, and bellinelli having another one of those guys has been awesome too now you have bigs like sharich and Ilyasova, who are cable passers can shoot as well so you can't leave those guys uh obviously simmons pushing the ball in transition and, and he can set guys up or, or get to the rim and they'll run some snug pick and roll stuff with him uh covington is another really capable shooter uh the game really turned when it, he got into foul trouble in the first half and then you know he was able to avoid that in the second half and he made some great defensive plays in the third quarter uh, as they surged into that lead but it's just reddick coming off the screen okay it's not there flip it right back to the big go run off of him again or reddick comes off a screen curls not there the pass is never made and so then he'd go uh, and and say maybe you know the big has stepped out to stop reddick well okay now jj reddick he's gonna just screen that big and dario sharch or, or irson Ilyasova is gonna pop right out to the three-point line and shoot a three instead i mean he, he his constant activity and bellinelli to a lesser extent they're running a lot of stuff too where they would run some floppy stuff for reddick on one side they'd throw it to him even if he wasn't open for the shot but then right after that it would be bellinelli coming off the other side on the same action and then they just throw it to bellinelli on the other side from reddick I mean, it's just just beautiful basketball. I mean, the number of assists that they've had, and Miami runs good stuff too, but 34 assists for the Sixers. Simmons had 14 assists. He was awesome. I thought defensively in particular, he looked really, really good. Had his usual two steals. So, and nine steals total for the Sixers. It was just an offensive clinic. We didn't think, and they're not going to shoot 18 out of 28 from three, but what Reddick and Bellinelli in particular have been doing offensively in this period since Embiid has been out, you know, Reddick, we didn't say his stats yet overall, eight out of 13, 28 points. And he also got to the foul line for eight out of eight. <laughs> you know, I mean, he got into the lane. They had a couple of dumb fouls well, and, on rem- and remember how this game started, where in this, I believe it was the second minute of the game, Reddick got stripped by Tyler johnson and kind of he went out of the play johnson i believe was actually blocked by robert covington on that play that was the play where covington got two blocks but one of them was disallowed and then reddick left the game bellinelli came in and was great and so we're kind of sitting there going well oh man they're really going to be hurt if jj reddick can't come back in he came back in and had a really good game but bellinelli built on top of that and both of those guys i mean they combined for 53 points in 64 minutes playing a lot of that time together yeah and miami does not have the on-ball creators to punish that alignment with reddick at the two and bellinelli at the three you would think that that would be an untenable lineup but you know those guys are really playing the one and the two defensively but still you know you're they're not miami's not going to get the switch and go at those guys that's not how they play i might like to see that a little bit actually whether it's like someone like wade or james johnson let's go put jj reddick in a pick and roll and make you know make him guard Dwayne wade or james johnson in the post but that's a not the way Miami plays these days. I thought Miami, I mean, they shot 12 out of 26 on threes themselves. You know, they were absolutely on fire at the beginning of the game. Also got to the foul line for 31 attempts. Like it wasn't a bad offensive game. I thought from Miami overall, though, they really, they couldn't get anything done from two point range whatsoever, but they were 23 out of 52 on two pointers which is pretty miserable but they you know they got fouled a fair amount um Whiteside only 12 minutes as we said he really struggled um Dragic was four out of 14 Covington really locked him down extremely well and then they switched on Simmons onto him that even getting Redick onto Dragic would be another thing they could maybe try Josh Richardson played one of the worst games I've ever seen him play I thought that he uh committed some fouls early he got beat back door a few times he wasn't really that effective on Simmons was one out of seven from the field um so the heat can definitely play better than this i think and, and 
Kelly Olenek was really the one Heat player who played well, 26 points and, and four or five from three. Um, but, you know, the, the defense is a little compromised with him out there. So I, I'm not sure where they go from here. The, the Heat, what do you see as far as adjustments for them? I think the big question they need to ask is where they want to put Josh Richardson. He can have some nice moments, certainly on Ben Simmons and James Johnson, Justice Winslow are not perfect options there. But we saw the damage that J.J. Reddick can do. I thought that's going to be where they started with Richardson and then maybe you throw him on Simmons and you're open to it. Like, let's say in a switching situation, you're very open to it. But the Sixers don't force those in the same way it's a a little bit of a different mechanism for them I still think that's the way Miami should turn eventually and then with Whiteside I think one of the big mistakes that Spo made in this game in the second half was not going back to Whiteside when the opportunity presented itself by Amir Johnson returning to the game just say hey we've got your back they put this in a situation that wasn't manageable but you're still our guy when when everything goes in that direction and by that point Olenek and Bam Adebayo were on the floor they didn't want to go away from it but it's like i, I think you're you kind of want to play it's partly the long game but it's also a sun white can provide value in those circumstances so bringing him in being able to pick those spots and yeah it, there is a chance that being reluctant outside of those spots with him will be dangerous and whenever joel mb comes back this calculus entirely changes but with Whiteside, i think miami has to be more proactive than reactive and anticipatory i think that can actually work to their advantage but it is challenging yeah and for miami even when they took that 60 to 54 lead at halftime it didn't seem or, or, or 60 to 56 lead at halftime it didn't seem to me like they i thought the sixers were outplaying them just in general in terms of the quality of shots that they were getting you know it just seemed more sustainable for them um you know I, i'm not sure that tyler johnson quite gives you enough in this series to start you know i might look at starting wayne ellington um or maybe you look at starting Justice Winslow so you can do some more switching as well. You know, make these guys get into the post. Maybe you can, uh, Dragic can be a defensive liability, but, you know, maybe if you switch more, you can get away with Whiteside. We'll see whether, I'd be very interested to see whether Brett Brown is going to start Ilyasova or not. But maybe, you know, you do bring Whiteside off the bench, although, you know, I'm sure he's going to bitch out about that. But like, uh, so, or complain, I, I should say. Um, but yeah, I, to me, just hope they shoot a little bit worse. And, and it's just, the last point I wanted to make on this, was jj reddick a lot of times would get erased from postseason series with the clippers the, the jazz locked him down he just could not get shots and you know they'd run him off some floppy stuff every once in a while but this is just a whole other animal what they are doing with his shooting gravity and if you can't switch and, and you know the heat are always i think going to play a traditional big maybe what you need to do if you're the heat is think about just switching everything but that's not the way they played all year maybe they go with bam and just try to do a lot more switching because the Sixers are so low on individual ISO type creators unless Simmons is going to get into the post. But man, I mean, if Sharich is going to shoot like this, they've got Covington, four shooters around Simmons a, a lot of the time. It's difficult to deal with. And Redick, we talked about him at, at the, or I talked about him at, at the Clippers. This is just a totally different attack. Like he is really featured. The, you can't, unless you're going to switch, just take him away uh, the way that they did with the Clippers where, you know, they didn't have this level of ball movement and player movement. A couple other quick things I want to mention. One, I still think Wayne Ellington needs to play a larger role in Miami's system because offensively he just unlocks so many other things and they have all these players who are are talented defensively but limited offensively and he's imperfect. You know, he doesn't compromise their defense in the same way that other guys do, but I just think Ellington can be used. The other guy who I think we need to talk about with this game is Markel Fultz. Fultz was really big early on. That was, it was a four-minute 
two-minute stretch, I believe it was, that Simmons sat at, was it the very end of the first quarter? Yeah, the, the Heat the actually took, they had 35 points, and they let in the first quarter, and they led 35-23 at one point, and then Fultz came in. Right, and then... Fultz came in, Sixers were plus 11 in those minutes, and I thought Fultz was aggressive offensively, had that that fascinating play where he kind of like got into position then shot the ball over Justice Winslow, also had some ugly free throws, and Still a was three really bad jumper. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and so, but I thought Fultz looked good and had a skied for a couple defensive rebounds, which is always nice to see from him. And Fultz unlocks a very, very important element for the Sixers, which is the capability of running more consistently. And Miami, because of their depth, is more suited to handling that. But if the Sixers can advance out of this series, that could be a problem for a lot of other teams that they can, you know, really force you to get back in transition defense. And let's say, hypothetically, they got into a conference Finals against the Cleveland Cavaliers, that is a way that they could punish Cleveland because the Sixers now can run off of mixes, misses, and as you know, I, I love so much, they can run off makes in all 48 minutes if they really want to. And Fultz is key to that. And I thought he played a nice game overall, not jaw dropping as you would think, oh, he was plus 12 in 14 minutes, but I thought he did a nice job. Yeah, it's some nice steals as well. Uh, and, and there was a key stretch right at the end of the first quarter which Fultz was involved in pretty prominently uh, as well that where they scored five quick points right at the end of the quarter although they were hurt by the refs who missed a wide open Covington travel and then uh there was a, a pretty bad foul call as Fultz drove to the rim and they said he got fouled. he didn't um Dwayne Wade you know did have 11 points on four of seven but was negative nine I would like to and he played 19 minutes but obviously didn't play in the fourth much if at all I would like to see them break their offense a little bit and just try to slow the pace down, get Wade into the post against a, a favorable matchup, draw some double teams, set up some threes that way. You don't have to do that all the time, but when he's in there, give him a chance to do what he does well. That's probably the best thing that he does at this point. Um, yeah. Well, no, the best thing that he does is dr- get a pump fake to get a Rashawn Holmes in the air and then draw the foul. Yeah. All right, let's do Golden State and San Antonio quickly here. We were at this game. I predicted Warriors in seven. And, you know, Steve Kerr juiced, got them back going. The crowd was pretty good early on. Started Andre Iguodala at point guard, really unlocked the length and switching. I don't think that the Spurs were really prepared for that. The Spurs were not really prepared for much. This is the most number of mental errors I've ever seen a Spurs team make. I thought their strategy sucked. I thought their effort sucked. And I thought their execution sucked. It was awful. I thought a lot of different things could happen in this game, but the most surprising element of it for me, and the thing I never saw coming, was San Antonio both starting Patty Mills and DeJounte Murray, and then trying to switch everything, because it just led to Patty Mills, primarily, and in certain other circumstances, Tony Parker and various other guys, being put on Kevin Durant, and Kevin Durant, he torched those people decently well, that actually led to a couple of JaVale McGee's early points, he was offensively dominant early in this game, mostly because of the attention everybody else was getting and I actually thought Durant could have been more aggressive looking for his own shot in those circumstances and the Spurs like you're looking at it you go okay these are the players you're going to play and this is your approach and I just looked at it and went that was never going to work it might not have failed as spectacularly as it did in this game if they hadn't gotten beat for like back doors yeah by I mean they just miscommunicated they blew so many of those switches early on it was crazy in addition to just being in bad matchups as a result of it right so they had a lot of different things that were that were really concerning and what I think will be notable as we move forward in this series is I think it was particularly kind of the middle of the first quarter 
Aldridge seemed off-kilter or spooked. You could use a couple different words for it. With JaVale McGee's length, and usually Aldridge is able to find kind of the weak point in an opponent's defensive toolbox and just attack that and be okay with it. You know, not going to be able to, to get any shot against any player, though he can do a good job, but just being like, okay, I'll get mine in this way. But he had a, a couple shots affected, I think at least one blocked by McGee. And so he got a little bit more hesitant and San Antonio does not have enough offensive options for for Aldridge to be anything less than super aggressive. I think even Tim Bontemps would have to give JaVale McGee some credit. He did get beat in pick and roll early in the third quarter as the Spurs started Rudy Gay in the second half over Kyle Anderson and, and tried to spread it out and go pick and roll a little more. But ultimately their ball handlers are just too limited. I mean, Prada had a, a good tweet that uh, when you're running the most basic set in the NBA, spread pick and roll and your best guy to do it is a 40 year old that might not be a great sign um but but anyway back to javel yeah th- there's a subject post game was him staying down on some of those pump fakes and but usually he's just his timing as a shot blocker is all off he'll get knocked backwards in post defense like i expected all just to light him up i was really thought it was a bad decision by Kerr to start Travail and I was totally wrong he did a great job uh and then offensively he in these first run series he just continues to kill it had some nice dunks he's really just a wonderful finisher around the room can't set a screen for shit uh but uh, on the weak side but Clay Thompson's so good moving off the ball because they're they're switching everything one through four the Spurs were and I really I just don't think that that's necessary you know against this Warriors team it's necessary you're not going to stop a team with Steph Curry it, without switching um but like do you really need to switch a play between like sean livingston and draymond green or like no like you just you can give help there's enough non-shooters on the floor that you can help out conventionally on some of this back cut stuff and try to pressure the ball because you know you're going to have help at the rim and just play it conventionally like there's no reason to be doing all this switching i mean and manu was like oh we get into oracle we have to play well beyond what our capabilities are or something like that and it's like no you don't like this warriors team is not that good offensively right now i mean now if you want me to come up with answers for how the fuck the Spurs are going to score on this team no I got no idea as long as they're engaged it's not going to happen efficiently but they should be able to defend you know at, at at least a decent way and like make K- KD beat you with some hard shots so I mean they're just giving up layups and then but so I think you know try and play it conventionally and then you know Danny Green should be guarding Kevin Durant you know they start with Kyle Anderson guarding Dur- uh, Durant and Danny Green on clay i think you go Dejounte murray on clay tell him to get through those screens and then maybe you know if it's your bigs and clay's about to get open for a three say hey okay step out with some emergency help there and then let the guy get out there and retreat back and we'll try and rotate behind the play but i, I just don't see the need for switching especially if you're going to do it this poorly and, and fail to communicate and then you're also you know going to get stuck in mismatches with guys like even draymond in the post against a patty mills or katie in the post against patty mills it just it doesn't really seem to be that enlightened um do you do you have any ideas for them to get better offensively though not particularly <laughs> i mean it, it's it's going to be a challenge they played Brent forbes a fair amount in this game and he was another one of those players that got stuck on right. kevin durant a few times and that was a problem maybe trying to use davis bertans a little bit differently i i've enjoyed some of what he has done this season and the, his ability to space the floor especially when kyle anderson isn't providing as much value that would be one way to turn but they and, and i would say you know giving manu more time if he can if he can physically do it he is to me their best perimeter offensive 
defensive player. And so yeah. and, and maybe even not playing not playing a conventional point guard size guy as well. You know, I mean it's you know, Manu's Yeah, or play Murray and Manu, yeah. you know, something like that could work. Um it's just especially when Pop plays the Warriors, it's just and this has been the case for a long time with them. I mean, some curious rotational decisions going back even to the twenty fifteen I'm sorry, the twenty sixteen playoffs against OKC, for example, or even the twenty fifteen against uh the Clippers, you know, when I was really locked in on it then too. Like there's just so many lineups you put out there that don't make sense guys guarding guys who just are, are clearly not the best option to do it you know uh, danny green play and granted this is a blowout but danny green plays 22 minutes slow-mo oh we're gonna start you oh but we're not even gonna play you a single minute in the second half i think you only played 11 minutes for the game uh, maybe he got hurt or something i don't think so though uh and he didn't play well certainly um you know i did like the adjustment of going with more spread pick and roll at javel mcgee to start the second half you know i thought that was a, a good idea uh but you know so many of these lineups he puts out there it's like all right i'm gonna start anderson and danny green and then i'm gonna take them both out with five minutes left in the first quarter while kd is still out there and now we're guarding kd with manu ginobili or rudy gay or like you know if you think those are the two best guys and they probably are how about you keep one of them on the floor anytime that kd is on the floor you know it just it, there didn't seem to be a lot of thought into like what the rotations are. i was just oh this guy made a mistake i'm gonna take him out put someone else in now you know it just like it didn't it seemed so ad hoc for him and then you know he was so flippant with the media later and i i don't mind that i mean i'm not one of these media people who's like oh man they, they owe us the truth they owe us courtesy it's like no nah, you're just there like this is all part of a game of coverage and and getting people drama and stuff that they're gonna be interested in to read you know if the players don't or coaches don't want to play along with that i'm fine with it but um yeah, I mean, and, and the Warriors' defense showed up, I and mean, that's the biggest thing from their standpoint. Um, you know, I don't know if JaVale is going to continue to play this well, but it was... Uh, well, I have, yeah. I have a couple other yeah, what do you got? Warriors-related takeaways. One, Nick Young was out yes. of rotation until garbage time. They went a lot of times to Quinn Cook and Sean Livingston playing together when Iguodala started. Also, Iguodala started this game, but due to it being a blowout, only played 23 minutes. Yeah. He also suffered a thigh contusion uh, late in the first half. True, he did. And so they were able to, to make all of that work i thought kavon looney played nice minutes off the bench and then as has been a running joke especially for those of you who subscribe to the athletic david west actually played in all four quarters of this game he played in the first and third quarters despite previously joking this is sarcastic but being banned from playing there he played a lot with looney i thought those lineups looked solid you know it's imperfect but the warriors just don't have their full complement of personnel and they're going to need more from those guys in this interim if they're going to be starting iguodala i don't know if that's going to be permanent or anything like that and also in the competitive portion of this game i thought quinn cook looked confident going for his shot he was i believe two for four in the first three quarters and then missed a couple shots in garbage time i don't care about that at all so i thought overall the warriors looked good they will need to play better if they have to face a superior opponent while still being without steph curry but defensively the biggest swing guy in this is not draymond green because draymond green is more consistent it's kem durant durant played more effective and yeah he got through screens in this game he, he closed out on shooters he was there to help at the rim he was back to being the player that we know that he can be defensively so i think that was uh, uh the big takeaways for them was the warriors defensively i think brought a lot of that intensity and also clay thompson was super aggressive yeah in the how is this the first one time shot the we've mentioned him i mean he had 27 points on 13 shooting possessions i mean that's more yeah. than two points per shot he was the warriors leading scorer and he took one shot in the first quarter yeah i mean but he like he really had it going like he had these two shots where he went came along the baseline 
in the second half and just like didn't even have his feet set like one he pump faked Rudy Gay in the air and then just like faded away with his feet not even facing the goal another time he came off a screen on the baseline it was his feet are like you know double shoulder width apart and he just rises up anyway and hits it I mean he's just so consistent with his release I mean he he was awesome in this one you know obviously his switching is really solid the Warriors double teaming of the post is really solid they weren't guarding Tony Parker they weren't guarding DeJounte Murray they weren't guarding Kyle Anderson so I, I mean probably the biggest stat of this game out of all of them though the Spurs like midway through the third quarter were one out of six in the restricted area and yeah 16 or 17 percent from the restricted area is bad six attempts through like 30 minutes of basketball in the restricted area not good offense and pretty good defense and i i think as long as golden state brings that level of intensity defensively i think you know the spurs maybe can shut down golden state a little bit but you know they still have kevin durant and they don't they only have one guy who's a decent defender on him so i mean you're never going <laughs> to shut them down to that degree We'll see, though, whether Golden State can, in fact, maintain uh, this level of defensive focus. It obviously was an issue for them during the regular season. But, you know, worth noting that Iguodala, Livingston, like some of those guys weren't playing and they're being replaced by Nick Young. And with Nick Young not playing anymore, all of a sudden the defense looks a lot better uh we got time to do toronto and washington here of course all right so, so this was actually one of the closer games of saturday but i think the reason why it wasn't as high on our list is that it didn't challenge what we were thinking about the series nearly as much one of the elements to me that changed this game was at early on Otto porter looked like he tweaked his ankle and he just didn't show as much burst or life on either end of the floor ended up with just nine points on seven shots and and then later in the game, Markeith Morris had a weird lower body injury where it kind of looked like a tweaked ankle. I worry that there might be a little bit of knee stuff there. He ended up coming back into the game, which is certainly encouraging. But the Wizards just didn't have enough pop from everyone outside of Wall and Beal, and those guys weren't particularly efficient offensively either. Yeah, the first half, the Wizards looked pretty good. Wall was getting into transition. He had 10 assists, but did not shoot the ball well in the aggregate in this game ended up six out of 20 he did go three of five from three uh the three makes were all catch and shoots as it turned out and he got to the foul line at least for 10 attempts um had 23 points but as i mentioned it took him 20 field goal attempts to get there and then beal was eight out of 17 you know those guys played a, a combined 80 minutes in the second half though they couldn't really score 21 three-point attempts is not going to be enough for them i thought the raps defense was pretty good especially in the half court and and once you choke off washington's transition um they're forcing wall to finish at the rim you know i think they once they decided hey you know what we're gonna not leave three-point shooters and we're gonna make john wall finish at the rim i forget what he finished but at one point he was two out of ten at the rim and then for from toronto's perspective i think the the most important takeaway here was just not how his, his final box score line but that kyle lowry looked more explosive and he looked more engaged i thought he played a better defensive game than we have seen from him a lot of this year and that is what matters moving forward because while the Raptors have and have gotten so much more from the bench and also worth noting Fred Van Vliet did not play at all in this game yeah, shoulder injury sustained that, against the, the shoulder heat. although I've heard people say that was a meaningless game uh that is not really the case because I believe if they had won that game 
that Miami would have actually been the team that they would have faced rather than Washington and perhaps they just felt like hey we'd rather face Miami so that could be true the, the, it would regardless it had an effect on who they were going to play obviously not their own sure. seating right and I thought Lowry's activity and his burst was was important moving forward because that is a, a key to what Toronto does well and there were other nice flashes for a lot of guys Serge Ibaka's jump shot was falling in this game three or four from three and I think he hit another two mid-rangers on top of that and OG Ananobi had a couple of nice plays as well I think he had two well he had one corner three one like on the above the break corner line and then he had a, a couple of nice finishes as well and it was it was I thought it was a, a solid game for him and also DeLon Wright had some real nice moments as well yeah 18 points seven of ten from the field for him four assists three steals did have four turnovers which wasn't great but he went three out of four actually on three pointers and actually even hit one off the dribble when they went under on him so he's taking you know it still takes a while to get that off he's not that aggressive shooting it but uh four three-point attempts in 25 minutes is not bad Lowry and DeRozan came on in the second half I mean it was 59-55 at halftime the Wizards actually led it they went on a 13-0 run about midway through the second quarter to get that five-point lead or so but the reps turned up the defense and then just the shooting was awesome for them 16 out of 30 53 percent from three DeRozan hit a couple big ones Ibaka you mentioned was three or four CJ Miles four out of seven you know these weren't great shooters taking a lot of these you know it's they're not going to shoot to that level to be sure uh and in the future and you know DeRozan 17 points six out of 17 only got to the foul line four times was better in the second half as we mentioned at, at halftime I think they were you know had like eight points combined on terrible shooting so you know I didn't see enough from the Raptors in this game to be like oh man like because it, it's ultimately if they're going to outscore Cleveland, I don't think they can stop Cleveland. So if they're going to outscore them, Lowry and DeRozan have got to play like not just like adequate basketball, but awesome basketball. And they weren't quite there tonight. We're, we're going to need to see more of that from this is a crappy Wizards defensive team, I think. So I want to see more from them to really like believe in this Toronto team. But hey, at least they broke the curse of losing game ones at home in the first round. And, uh, you know, they're off to a decent start. I have the the wraps in seven. Um, You know, this Washington team, especially if, uh, Porter and Marquis are going to be nicked up does not really look uh, that great so I'm uh, uh yeah a couple other quick things Jan Mahimi came in for Marcin Gortat in the first quarter committed two fouls in three minutes and never came back in this game they ended up going a lot with Michael Scott and and sometimes Keith playing together and sometimes with with Gortat I thought Mike Scott had a had a pretty solid offensive game yeah. but defensively those lineups are always going to have flaws yeah also worth noting Bebe I think I want to say he played the last nine minutes of the game or or at least no he might have come in right at the end of the third but he played his all of his nine minutes in the second half going into crunch time was plus eight uh didn't have a field goal but I thought he uh, provided some something defensively um when they went away from Pirtle in the second half although I thought Pirtle had some nice plays protecting the rim in the first half so they didn't need Van Vliet I, they went back to the lineups were interesting down the end they went back to Ananobi who had played well in his first stint he usually gets the Keith Bogans he didn't in the first half and then they went with Wright closing the game I think in Van Vliet's place and, and as you mentioned Wright was outstanding so um for the wizards john wall still can't hit a mid-ranger uh he's shooting under 30 percent on those sadaransky only played 12 minutes he was negative six so that they still didn't play well with wall uh off the floor kelly Oubre, they didn't really get anything for him in 16 minutes i mean they played markeith 38 minutes wall and beal played a lot so 
yeah, you know, I, I didn't really get a great feeling about Washington from this game. Uh, and if they can, you can keep them out of transition. I think that Toronto can stop them pretty well because Toronto's big defensive weakness is the lack of a wing stopper. And, you know, Washington doesn't really have any, the personnel to take advantage of that. But we'll see. You know, Washington could win game two and it could be panic time again for the Raptors. Who knows? that's probably the biggest thing to remember here after all this is hey you know what like let's not jump to conclusions about this i mean i think probably the one series where i'd feel like oh i would jump to a conclusion is maybe the warriors just because the effort level defensively was there and as long as they bring that like they're gonna win this series pretty easily i think i just wasn't counting on that happening because we hadn't seen it for them for such a long time yeah i i think that would be fair of the of the saturday games and and while there were certainly high points and i think in particular new orleans you got an idea of kind of how they could win this series you don't go oh well that's definitely going to happen because they took a road game even though that is significant of course all right that will do it for uh, one of our favorite pods of the year well over two hours uh, in terms of our actual recording time here so uh we'll be back on monday see how good those games are maybe we'll we'll do a little bonus content also uh if those two games don't really lead to uh a ton of analysis required one of those could be warriors spurs so it wouldn't shock me if at least that one ends up being pretty boring as we said that series looks pretty boring overall um but yeah i mean it was good to see the warriors actually play hard like that was like i'd almost been like loathing going to those games because it's just like the way they'd been playing was just like unwatchable but it's good to see them at least back and trying hard again um anything else you want to say before we wrap up here uh no i think that's enough for right now (laughs) yes it is all right we'll talk to you all monday night till then every day our world gets a little more connected but a little further apart but then there are moments that remind us to be more human thank you for calling amica insurance hey uh i was just in an accident don't worry we'll get you taken care of At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.